coming up next on Two Cops, One Donut. Another question. Okay. Um, this is going into more of the helping the public understand um, some myths and stuff about prosecution and DAs and all that stuff. How are you all evaluated in your job? Because one of the things that people want to attack prosecutors about, you guys are all about the numbers. You don't, mm-hmm. you, know, you ever seen the movie Law Abiding Citizen? Mm-hmm. I mean, that was the premise of that is like, I just wanted you to care and I wanted you to do what was right. That was the basic premise of that movie. Mm-hmm. His wife was murdered and all that stuff. And he just wanted the guy win, lose or draw. I wanted you to go after what was right. So if you are concerned about the numbers and that's how you're evaluated as a prosecutor, like, is that true for one? Is that how that works or how are you evaluated? All right, welcome back to Cops One Donut. I am your host, Eric Levine, and my special guest with me today is Tiffany Barks. How are you doing, ma'am? I'm well. How are you? I'm good. I was so excited for this episode. Yay! Because it is very rare that I get anybody from the court side. Mm-hmm. So if you're listening to the podcast, you're like, all right, what's this episode going to be about? What is she about? It's going to be the court systems. Um, Tiffany is actually running for Tarrant County district attorney so yes that is interesting in itself um we've had at Tarrant county anyway we've had the same da there for a little while i don't know how long she's been in eight years eight years it'll be eight years in december okay so i'm gonna get into questions about um how that whole process works because i'm confused on the nominations for that why does a political party matter all of that stuff that doesn't make sense to me i'm like Great question. You're the law. You're supposed to be objective, third party, your politics shouldn't matter. But we'll get into all that. First things first, um, how are you doing, ma'am? I'm well. Yeah? I'm tired. I bet. Yeah. Tired of campaigning, I bet? I'm not tired of campaigning. It's just because I love it, actually. I didn't think I would, mm-hmm. but I've really enjoyed uh, being out, meeting people, talking to people. Nice. Um, you learn a lot about the community when you just, you know, sit down and on people's porches and talk yeah. and yeah. it's been kind of cool. Absolutely. I'm just tired because it's, you know, it's constant. Like, yeah. I don't and feel like I ever sleep. <laughs> I bet. I bet. Um, with, uh, with, we'll get down your path, your career path and the court stuff and all that. But, um, it is not normal. Uh, I shouldn't say it's not normal. That's a bad way to put it. Um, you're in the minority female going for a DA. It just anywhere. It's a male dominated sport. Mm-hmm, it <laughs> um, is. So, but somebody's already paved the way. You're, you're going for a female's position. That's she's, right. She's already there. So, mm-hmm. um, in that, what led you to service? Like, where did you grow up? Where'd you start out? How did you become an attorney? Is that how they word it? Yeah, sure. Become, yeah. So I love telling the story because I get to talk about my family a little bit. All right. Um, but I grew up in Dallas. I grew up in South Oak Cliff. Um, I am the fifth of six children. My father was a World War II veteran, and um, he stressed education with us because he knew that was the pathway to success and to independence. And so all of us went to school, graduated, went on to college. We all graduated college, um, which is kind of an anomaly even now to have that happen. 
Um, but I, I recall at a young age, uh, I may have been 11, 12, um, watching a 60 Minutes episode with my dad. I remember 60 Minutes. Yes, I still watch 60 Minutes. I stopped. <laughs> I stopped. It, it, everything became so political for me anymore. I'm just like, you know what? If it's not happy, fun news, I don't want to I get it. it. I get it. <laughs> but I was watching a show about, um, it was a man who had been wrongly accused of a crime. He had gone to prison and been exonerated, and he was kind of talking about all of that. And I remember asking my dad, like, how does that happen? that someone could get there. Like they didn't do it, but somehow they end up in prison for that many years. And I recall my dad saying, baby, if you want to change a system, you got to be a part of it. And I thought, oh, okay. (laughs) I mean, I was 12. I was like, okay. So um, I think that kind of stayed with me uh, throughout my life. And um, my parents were always about service to others. That was huge in our family. We were, you know, always involved. We would go down the street to uh, the nursing home and Mm -hmm. we would, you know, do things there and with kids in the community and just all kinds of stuff. But uh, I got to college and I think all of that just kind of started coming back as I'm trying to figure out who I'm going to be, you know, as an adult. And I made the decision to go to law school. Um, And that's kind of where it started. When I got to law school, um, you take a bunch of classes, right? You take yeah. like criminal law, property law, um, all kinds of stuff, Contra- a, contracts. I think it's important to point out to people too about the law because one of the things they expect is like you as a prosecutor, you as an attorney, you you should know all the law. Yes. And you as a police officer, you should know all the law. Yes. And that ain't true. That ain't true. I mean, people would call me and say, hey, can you do a will? And I'm like, uh, no. <laughs> you're an attorney though aren't you yeah right you're an attorney can you help me with this patent uh no yeah. so when you go into law school it is it's like becoming a doctor you right. can be a foot doctor or you can be an ankle like it just it breaks down that finite and that's how the law works that's how i've learned it as a cop and mm-hmm. you know it, people ask me questions all the time like why this person allowed to do that I'm like, i don't know i gotta look that one up like yeah <laughs> yeah as long as you know how to look it up, though, because at least they train you how to do that part. Yes, yeah. that's the important part. And so in law school, it's the same. So they teach you the basics of like all of these different areas of law, and then they teach you how to do research to find the answers. And then as you're you know, going through all these courses, you figure out which ones you enjoy. And for me, it was criminal law, criminal procedure, juvenile law, family law, um, evidence. I don't like juvenile law. I, I actually do, but I'm going to change your mind before we leave. (laughs) Okay. And, um, so I did that and, um, decided criminal law is what I wanted to do, but I wanted to be a defense attorney because now I'm thinking about the show, right? Oh yeah. yeah. And I'm thinking if I had done that, what would I have done differently? Would I have been able to, you know, make sure he was acquitted because he didn't do it. Um, and so we had this, um, practicum you could go work at a DA's office. And so I was like, that's criminal law, even though it's not defense work. So I did that uh, in Harris County. And someone there said, you need to be a prosecutor. And I was like, I don't want to put people in jail. I want to keep them out of jail. And, and they said, no, you, you need to consider being a prosecutor because we need women and we need minorities. We need people that look like you on this side of the bar. That makes everything more fair, more just. And I thought, eh, okay. And I did it, loved it, never left. Really? Never left. 
that's nuts because mm-hmm. everybody knows the money ain't on, good it ain't good it's, <laughs> it's on the defense side my first uh job down in fort bend county i made thirty three thousand dollars a year oh my god that didn't touch your Mm-mm. law school did it nope <laughs> and when i paid my paid my rent paid my car note paid my insurance paid my utilities i was usually broke until the next paycheck oh man and so i i still I still remember the day, I tell this story too, I had a little weenie dog named Sable. I grew up with a weenie dog. Did you? I did too. Gidget. (laughs) So Sable and I were thick as thieves. And one Thursday, I remember being in our apartment with nothing to eat except grapes. And I had no idea at the time that grapes were bad for dogs. Oh, are they? Yeah, they're bad for dogs. I didn't know that. So I'm eating grapes. And for like every four or five grapes, I'll give Sable one. Yeah. You know, because I'm like. <laughs> stomach's littler. I can't sit here and eat and not give you something to eat. Yeah. Until my paycheck the next day. And so, yeah. I mean, you have to, you have to love the work. Yeah. It's not the, the pay is. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so you get into Harris County and that's straight out of college. Right. So I, I interned in Harris County, but then I went to work for Fort Bend, which is right next to Harris. Oh, okay. And I stayed there from 97 until the end of 98, so for a little over a year. Mm -hmm. And then I came to Tarrant County in 99. Okay. Yeah. Now, growing up, you said your family was in service. Um, Mm -hmm. What what types of, now, World War II vet, that's amazing. Um, what, what, What did they do? So my dad was born in 1926. Holy shit. Yeah. And so I had like, when I graduated high school, my dad was like 60 something. Okay. So I had like, I remember kids used to laugh and I was like, whatever. You was an accident. Uh, No, my little sister was an accident. Oh Oh my God. (laughs) I have a sister that's seven years younger than me. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, Nikki, you're not an accident. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so my dad was a World War II vet. Uh, He was born in 1926. He has a phenomenal story, actually. He, um. In he, he was a veteran of underage military service. So he was, you know, you're not supposed to go into the military until you're 17. Right, but everybody in World War II was right. They had 14 year olds going. So in. my dad was 15. Ah, yeah. And um, he was uh in Germany, France. He still talk. I mean, I remember him talking about going over on the the Queen Mary. What? Almost capsizing in the middle of the is that the Atlantic? Yeah, the Atlantic. Um, he went to Glasgow, Scotland, and then from Scotland, he went to Britain and then from Britain to France and France to Germany. He went to them all. all of yeah. Them. What was his, was he army? Yeah. Oops, sorry. Oh, you're fine. Yes. He was, uh, well, they, I don't know if it was called army then, but it was when the army and the air force were together. I think yeah, that was yeah. a time. So he was probably army air corps. That's what he was. Yeah. Yeah, I'm Air Force. I I know the history. There you go. (laughs) Yeah. And so he was part, I said I would never forget this. He was part of the uh, 985th Engineering Battalion. Okay. So they basically built all the bridges, the roads, the airstrips. He was probably what we call now Red Horse. Um, That's the unit. And basically when we go forward and move and create a base at a place that there's nothing it's Red Horse for the Air Force. I don't know what they're called for the other branches, but that's what he did. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. It was. It was pretty awesome. Yeah. And so he did that. He got out when he was nineteen, eight, eighteen or nineteen, and went back to high school as okay. a, as a sophomore. 
Holy shit. Right. So he graduated high school when he was like 21 or 22. Dang. And then he went to Tuskegee uh, in Alabama, where he's from. Tuskegee Airmen, right? Yeah. Yeah. And um, he was a, he had his, uh, his degree was in prosthetics and boot making. Okay. So he could build a prosthetic device. He could build a boot. He could build shoes. He could do all kinds of stuff. Talk about a weird profession to fall into. Yeah. 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 Did the war have anything to do with that? You know what? I I wish I could ask him that question. I don't know. Oh, sorry. I'm military. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I started. I, I, this is supposed to be about you, but I get curious about things no, like it's, that. No, it's cool. I, 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 I do remember, you know, stories where he got out of the military. And at first he went back to Georgia because he was at Fort Benning, I mm-hmm. think. And um, he went there to learn how to be a barber. Okay. And he didn't like it. And someone said, hey, you should, you know, consider going to college and being a a shoe repairman, be a cobbler. Okay. And so he went. And Tuskegee at the time wasn't a university. It was an institute, right? It was a a trade school, basically. And so everyone who went there learned a trade, and that was his. Okay. And so um, he came out and went to teach at a vocational school in Louisiana. And that's where he met my mom, who was a nursing student. So okay. that's kind of how all that happened. Okay. So back then. That's now, cute. That's cute, huh? It is. Yeah. Is, was your, my wife's just about to finish nursing school. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. She decided, Yeah, I don't want to say late in life necessarily, but not at the normal time. She's like, I want to help deliver babies. And I was like, well, that's good because you ain't getting no more babies. So <laughs> we're done. <laughs> we are done. But um, yeah, I said, hey, you supported me throughout my career so go for it um now is your is your dad black as well okay so i'm just i'm only reason i'm asking this because world war ii is not a fun time to be african-american in the military no he he uh, and you know he talked about that a lot he talked about the discrimination yeah he was in an all-black infantry well the units say infantry but it was all black that's all they did um and he said you were either a cook or you did what he did. And actually he considered it an honor to be one of the people chosen to build things. Yeah. Because most, That's a lot of trust. Yeah. Cause most of the African-American soldiers were, you know, yeah. more subservient roles. Yeah. Absolutely. And he always told the story about how they gave him gun, a gun with no ammunition. And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, I never get, he said, imagine being over there with a gun with no bullets. I and was world like, war two. Like, yeah. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah come a long way yeah and he grew up in alabama very segregated of course mm-hmm. a lot of discrimination uh, so yeah he, he had an interesting life yeah grew up in the great depression Man. just a lot you know and i still remember before he died in 2011 we're sitting in the kitchen and he said um he said oh we i feel i feel bad for y'all yeah and i was like huh and he said yeah this world y'all are living in i i I feel bad for y'all. I'm like, dad, you grew up in the great depression, (laughs) world war two. And what? And it resonated with me because with all the things that he had seen, things when he got older looked worse and it was, yeah, it was weird. I never forgot that. Yeah. I think it's that, that, um, hindsight, you know what I mean? Like to us, like maybe the more simpler times wasn't as nearly as bad. So, um, it goes into uh, one of the things I was uh, kind of pointed out to me early in my policing career and then kind of where I grew up, growing up in Flint and um, 
we talk about generational culture, like the stuff that gets passed down. And then you take somebody like your dad who went through, I mean, he went through the civil rights movement. Um, I mean, like you said, he went through the great depression. Imagine the type of teaching that can come down from a parent like that who had to grow up with that and the distrust towards government, the distrust towards policing, the distrust towards a lot of things that have changed over time. Like people don't understand like that. That's not that long. We're, we're talking one person ago. Right. One generation. One generation. Right. Mm-hmm. One generation. But even with all of that, my dad taught us to respect authority. Yeah. Even with all of that. Yeah. Because that was huge. He, he, taught us to respect authority he taught us to respect our teachers and he's taught us to respect our elders yeah if we didn't do anything else yep and so i'm 51 and if i'm in the company of a seven year 70 year old or someone older than i am i still say yes ma'am no ma'am yes sir no sir because that's just what he you know he taught us you yell at me for calling you ma'am i know but (laughs) (laughs) but i'm not your elder (laughs) (laughs) you see you're female I I, I appreciate the respect. I do. It is not lost on me. And Lord help me if I ever have to come to the courtroom (laughs) and you're grilling me on something. So I just got to make sure that hey, the last impression she had was, well, he's a respectful man. So, um, oops, sorry. That's okay. I've never had that happen. My bad. That's all right. Oops. Yeah, giving off negative vibes all of a sudden. Uh No, I'm just kidding. Um, okay. So you, let's, we'll fast forward. I kind of want to hit on your mom, not actually hit on your mom, but well, talk I, about your mom a little my, bit. My mom is the glue to our family. Like, so my dad was the, the, the disciplinarian, me. <clears throat> excuse me, the disciplinarian and, you know, structure and all, you know, all of that. My mom was the one who taught us um, how to treat people like with respect. And she taught us like how to have grace. Like she's a lady. Like I've never heard my mother curse. Really? Um, never. Oh, man. Um, she's that. She's like yeah. such a lady. She's quintessential lady. And she always taught us how to, how to show people grace. And, and you know, she, her, her slogan kind of is kill them with kindness. Like, yeah. even when people treat you poorly, yeah. you don't do that back. I call it the Bugs Bunny approach. Yeah. I use it with policing. Because nothing pissed off Elmer Fudd more than when Bugs Bunny give him a big old kiss, just be happy around him. That's right. What do you do with that? Yeah. It works. <laughs> And so she was, she, she was certainly the nurturer. She was the one that, um, in, in my opinion, my, my dad taught us how to, to be successful and how to live life. My mom kind of taught us how to enjoy it, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, my mom's fantastic. Okay. What did they think of you wanting to do law school? Uh, my mother actually was the one who said, I hope you go get a really good job because you have expensive taste. <laughs> <laughs> she ain't wrong. She ain't wrong. But you know, I'm real cheap though. My family always talks about me. Like I go to Walmart and I get the great value green beans. Okay. And they're like, the Libby is just 10 cent more. Why don't you just get the Libby beans? Yeah. My wife just came home with a frozen pizza that, well, I shouldn't say frozen, a refrigerated pizza, the fresh ones made by Kroger or Walmart or wherever she went. It, it was two forty nine for a pizza. And it was, I think it was one of those things like, if you don't buy it today, it's getting thrown out tomorrow. So she got it, comes home, makes it. That's how she is. So yeah. I think my mom knew that I was the kind of person who I like to give. I'm, I'm very giving. Yeah. So 
it wasn't about me having uh, a lot of money so that I can do for myself. I always like to do for others. Mm -hmm. So I'll spend more money on you than I probably would on myself. It's kind of how I am. Yeah. So you get into this, you, you decide to go into prosecution, um, being a prosecutor. You've got the support of your family, which is huge. You grew up in a two-parent home, which is huge. Um, I, di I didn't. I, I, my parents never even married. So, um, see, I knew, I, I knew I was fortunate in that regard because a lot of yeah. my friends didn't. Yeah. Too. Yep. Um, I remember having friends that had both their parents and thinking how strange that was. <laughs> really? You know what I mean? I'm like, that's weird. Your parents are still together. Like, that's, that's a weird dynamic, even for my age. My parents, uh, celebrated 50 years before my dad passed away. Wow. That's nice. Yeah. We, yeah, we're, um, I told you earlier that my wife and I, like, we've, basically been dating since seventh grade and we waited a little later in life but i think a lot stems because she comes from parents that have been married and divorced married divorce um you know and then my parents had never been shoot i think i got married my dad when he first actually got married was like almost near the same time me and my wife got married. wow so we've almost been married the same amount of time you know you say that it, it's interesting our experiences make us who we are that's why I like talking to people. Yeah. Because you, I had a teacher once in uh, high school. I took a theater arts class. And I remember one of the classes, he made us all connect with someone we did not know. And we each had to kind of talk about our life. And the, the girl that I was talking to, um, her, her father molested her. Um, her mother her father killed her mother. She ended up in an orphanage and she was living in an, in an orphanage like a, basically while I was in high school. Wow. And I'll never forget that because he was like, you never know what people are going through. Yeah. So you, you, you have to treat people with respect, like mm -hmm. show people grace. Like, and so, um, I, I just say, say that because you mentioned experiences. We, we don't know what people go through. Yeah. And if we do, maybe we'd be nicer to one another. Yeah. Yeah. I think we get caught up a lot of times um, in police work, uh, in the courts room, in the courtroom and stuff like that. We start getting these um, stories built up in our head because we got a vibe or we get, you know, just a snippet of that person's saying something and you're just like, he has an asshole. And then like, then you find out later on, oh shit, like, okay. Now I, I would probably be kind of a bitter person too if I had to go through that and um i mean people still have to be held accountable for their conduct but it's good to know yeah when you're making decisions about what you're going to do with the case and i guess we'll get into that later but yeah uh to kind of know their background a little bit yeah. so you roll into becoming a prosecutor and now kind of walk anybody that's interested in taking your path through that that first time in a courtroom, what it's like, what is your job? Like, how do you even start? How do you even start becoming a prosecutor? Because you don't just go right to court and you're like, I got the facts and these are the facts. That's not how that works. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> is that how that works? I mean, you? you're literally thrown in like, I, I mean, there's no like, you know, this is your OJT. This is your mentorship. They just throw so, you in the courtroom. So yes and no. So I, I let me be more clear. So okay. they do throw you into the courtroom and they give you a caseload that you're responsible for, but they also give you like a partner 
okay. or a mentor who's been there for a while uh, to help you through it. And so I still remember my first couple of weeks. I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And someone, my mentor, her name is Tyra McCollum. You know, she kind of mentored me down in Fort Bend County. She said, go read the go read the code. That's how you start learning. And so I started reading the code of criminal procedure, trying to understand what an arrest was, when you can arrest, what you have to have to arrest, search warrants, um, reading the penal code, the basics. Like you have to prove the elements. Like what? What are elements? Well, the elements, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like so, so, yeah, I mean, you go in there literally like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And, and it's crazy because you don't want to mess up because, you know, this is somebody's life. That you're dealing with. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes you have victims on the other side, you know, depending upon what kind of case it is. And you don't want to mess it up for them. So you're like, it's when you first start, it's scary because you're you're afraid that you're going to screw something up. And then add to that the fact that you have a law license. Mm-hmm. You don't want to lose it. Right. You got to, you know, you don't want to screw up. So while you're learning the law, you're also learning the ethics side of things, like what you're supposed to do, what you can't do. All, I mean, it's, there is a true learning curve to being a prosecutor. Yeah. It, the, one of the things I try to put in people that aren't police that ask me questions all the time, like, why is this guy screwing up? I'm like, the first five years of an officer's career is the most detrimental part of his career. Because they're like, well, these people, they can't talk to people. That's not necessarily true. They can probably talk to you just fine in a a room where they're not wearing a uniform. I was like, but now you've got CCP, uh, elements of an offense. You've got, you know, do I even have a lawful reason to talk to the stop this person and talk to them? Now, you're you're, just like you said, you start to worry about, am I violating somebody's civil rights? Am I going to lose my, you know, license to be a peace officer? Um, On top of that, now you're trying to have a conversation where you're trying to, you're you're dealing with somebody at the worst moment of their life because when you're talking to the cops, it's usually not a good thing. Um, So... that's interesting that we're talking about this because training, training really is important. Yeah. And now that you say it, because, you know, you guys go to police officer school first. Mm-hmm. You have training. Right. And then you have your, um, what do you call them, the office, the training officer? The field training, the field training officer. The training officer will go with you to make sure you're doing everything right first before you're released on your own. We don't have that that's as prosecutors. Why, that's what I was asking. Yeah. I, I, didn't, I didn't know that. I no. thought for sure, because we're all part of the criminal justice system, you guys would have kind of the same system we do. Mm-mm. No. <laughs> no, it really, It. I mean, it literally is like we skip the whole, you know, training in the class. So... I guess I shouldn't say that. The training in the classroom is law school, I guess. Okay. Think of it that way. Yeah. So when you get to the DA's office, our mentors, the people who have been there longer, I guess are our field training officers. Okay. And so so when I think of it that way, it makes more sense. Um, but that's kind of how we learn. Maybe that's where the saying trial by fire came from. Yes. for y'all. Yes. I mean, maybe that's what it means. I, I, I don't know that. Look it up. Google it. <laughs> but, um, but the difference between us and you guys is, is really major because they don't start us out with murder cases. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, you're right. We start with like DWIs, possessions of marijuana, yeah. because the thought is if you screw it up, the risk is not so great. Right? If you kind of mess up. Yeah. 
But yeah. for you guys, like you could get a murder like your first night. First call. First call. Yeah, you could. Yeah. So it's a little different for you guys than it yeah. is for us. Mine it, was a naked guy. Was it? That was my first call. Naked guy. Wow. Yeah. I handled it like a champ, though. I got him in the back of my car without even having to touch him. My first trial was uh, three guys in a car with a joint. In a common area. In a common area. <laughs> I'd have been like, I got a guilty. Oh, did you? Mm-hmm. Oh, dang. Joint possession, you know, all of those things. Yeah. So, since you, you're bringing the topic up, it's getting legal everywhere. Yeah, go ahead and make it legal. Good girl. I like that. <laughs> Thank I you. I mean. <laughs> I'm with you. <laughs> yeah. The, I mean, I feel like it's, it's sort of like any other drug that you put in your body. Like, mm-hmm. you have to be responsible for yourself once you use it. Yeah. You go to the bar, you drink alcohol. If you get behind the wheel of a car and you get drunk, you got to be held accountable. Yeah. If you hit somebody while you're drunk and you kill somebody, you got to be held accountable. Yep. Same thing with marijuana. My, you tell me if, there's, if you see an issue with this, but I've always thought that, I shouldn't say I've always thought, I've come to the conclusion that if we're going to make some of these things legal, just enhance the charge if you do something under the influence. Yeah. Just I like th- you do alcohol. I for think the that's, mo- yeah. yeah, that's the simplest way. Yeah, go ahead, legalize it. But if you do something, if you, if you punch a guy in the face, you know, and you weren't high, okay. But if you punch a guy in the face and you're high, well, let's enhance it because you, obviously, you can't handle that stuff. And the law is always going to be that if you voluntarily ingest any type of narcotic, whether it's legal or not, and then you commit a crime, you can't come back and say, oh, I was drunk when I did it. No, you voluntarily ingested the drug. Yeah. You knew that the drug could have this effect on you, so you can't claim some kind of defense because of it. Right. So, yeah, just... Just get it over with. Just, just make it, I mean, legal. Yeah. I mean, especially now that, you know, they've changed the law where you have to test all the marijuana. Yeah. We got to make sure it's 0.03 concentration THC before we can even prosecute the case. Right? Yeah. So that means every time you guys make an arrest for marijuana, it's got to go over to someone who can test it. It's going to cost money, time. Yeah. Yep. I'm with you. I I totally agree. I'm just, I'm. Let it go. I'm tired of, uh, you know, it being, being a thing. It's, it is. Hey folks, Eric Levine from Two Cops, One Donut. Want something better than Ring, Arlo, Ring, or any of the other quick launch home security systems? I've been having trouble with my Ring products. They don't read license plates on moving vehicles. The link doesn't connect fast enough to my phone. And I'm tired of getting notifications only to see like a glimpse of something that set it off. I was reached by a veteran-owned business called Agent Security. The owner, the staff, all veterans or former cops, they're Kind of like the Chick-fil-A of customer service when it comes to security. They have a system that does everything companies like Ring do and more. They have pivoting cameras that track day or night. They can also read license plates and catch high-definition details that will lead police more effectively to catching the offender. Their mission is providing the best home security systems to their customers. All you have to do is start the conversation to protect our most valuable assets, our families. They listen to your needs and come up with perfect customized security solutions to protect what matters to you most. You can contact them by phone 
at 713-962-3558 or email info at agentsecurity.com or visit their website, agentsecurity.com. That's A-G-E-I-N-T-S-E-C-U-R-I-T-Y.com. They serve the greater Houston area, North Texas, and more. Be sure to tell them that Eric Levine from Two Cops, One Donut Sent and earn 10% off your purchase. Causing issues for some officers out in the field now that have used that as a a tool to get into vehicles and look for bigger things and stuff like that. Um, but the, this is law enforcement. Law enforcement is we do something to, to help catch criminals. The public either is okay with it and to a point that they're not a rule gets adjusted. Cops figure another way around. That's just the cycle. We, we figure it's, I don't want to call it that we're looking for loopholes or we're doing it. It's just, we, we do our job according to, to the law and we figure out ways to make it work so we can keep catching bad guys. And then when something interrupts, you know, a tool that we had used, we figure out and find another way. It's just, it's how police works been as long as I known. Um, and we just keep moving on from there. So they're going to be, they're just going to be a lot more. Didn't turn your turn signal on 200 feet before that. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, turn signal 100 feet prior. 100 feet prior. Yep, and not stopping prior to the sidewalk before entering a roadway. <laughs> yes. Uh, I know all the tools for that, um, especially if you're chasing dope or if you're chasing um, – it's okay. So uh, what's your thought on the on the dope stuff? Because you've you've been a part of that for a while, dealing with CIs and all that stuff, right? Yes. Um, Okay, so which part of the dope stuff? Because so, it's a whole lot. Um, there's going to be the argument out there that why are cops wasting their time going after that stuff? It's a it's a victimless crime. They're that I mean, it's I, not victimless. You know, and I know the truth behind that. But you know, it's the whole broken windows theory. Is there any truth to that in your eyes through your experiences? You know, practicing the law. So there are a bunch of issues with drugs for me. First one is um, there are a lot of people who are addicted to drugs, and it's a disease, I think. Um, That's my own opinion, having seen so many people come through our system. Um, And we don't treat the disease. We just kind of treat the person. The disease stays the same. Yep. So we treat them by sending them to prison or jail or, you know, we try to give them an opportunity to go to, like, you know, drug treatment and stuff like that. But, you know... It's not until someone really wants to make a change in their life that it's going to happen. It's just, it's a disease. Um, so that's one part. Uh, so that's, so when I say it's not a victimless crime, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Like there, there are people making money off of someone else's misery. Yeah. Those are the people that I don't like. Yeah. I, I have a hard time with drug dealers. The dealers and the suppliers. The dealers and the suppliers are, are the problems for me. Mm-hmm. And, um, that is where I think for me as a prosecutor, I'd want to put my resources on those people more than those who possess because, you know, for their own personal use because it's a disease. The other part is I don't like confidential informants. I'm just going to go on the record as saying that right now. Like I understand the importance of, uh, I understand why it is sometimes necessary to use people for that purpose, but, there just seems to me to be so much um, risk in it. Um, and and I, I just, 
every time I'd look at a case file and someone would come to me at one of the, you know, narcotics officers and say, hey, we got this person. And, you know, I think they're going to be able to get us a bunch of, you know, drugs somewhere. And, you know, this is this is who they are. They're small time, you know, they're a user. It's hard to kind of describe, but they're victims, too. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? And and we're and we're putting them in a position um, that where we can make them a victim again. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And yeah. I just, I have concerns with that and I'm going to fix my head. Oh yeah. You're okay. Is it my, falling off the back? My head must be too little. <laughs> you're all right. Let me see. Still look beautiful. Okay. Thanks. Still good. Um, so that, that's just my personal take. I understand. I mean, I understand the importance of it. Um, I, I just, you know, I have women that come in and, I, well, I used to, I don't now because I'm not with the DA's office, but I had women that would come in, uh, you know, young 20 something year olds with a history of like meth use. Mm -hmm. They've got like six or seven arrests and somebody wants to use them as a CI to go into this like area with all these gang members or whatever. It, it just, the risk to me always seemed too great for what for what I felt like people were actually yielding, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um so yeah, I'm rambling now, so I don't know where I'm what what's no, you're okay. any, anything else? No, no. I just <laughs> it, the point that I was trying to get to that that you you hit is just it's not a victimless crime. It does perpetuate violence because it drives a market that would not normally occur. Um, I'm glad you hit on that because when I was in the gang unit, um, most of our cases dealt with narcotics. And so you are correct on that. There is a, there is an element in our community that thrives on drug sales and drug distribution. And uh, some of them are gang members. Some of them are not, but you are correct. And those types of the people that are involved in that element of our society usually find themselves involved in some kind of violent activity because you got to protect your, your money, mm -hmm. territory. All you you got to protect your, your product. Um, sometimes you have to protect your people. Um, and, and, you know, you talked about juvenile juvenile is a great example of why drug distribution is an issue in our County because a lot of uh, gang members, a lot of uh, drug dealers, they use the juveniles uh, to move their product throughout the county because they know that sometimes um, the juvenile aren't going to be punished as harshly as they would be. Yeah. So there, there's just a lot of factors with the, you know, I'm, I'm all for going after the drug dealers, the mm -hmm. distributors and the. The ones making the drugs, manufacturing. On our side of the house, if people are wondering, like, you know, Levine, what's your problem? Why do you have an issue with dealing with juvenile cases? Well, because juvenile cases are complicated. They are. Oftentimes, you do all this work for nothing to happen. Nothing happens because they're juveniles. They're really in. in it's going to be hard for some people to comprehend this, but when you are dealing with a case of a, an 11-year-old that stole a car, a 9-year-old that stole a car, these are cases I've worked. It's not going to go anywhere. It's their first time offending that they've been caught. They're with a group of older people 
all the way up to 19, 20 years old that are using them because they know damn well that nothing bad is going to happen to them in the long run. It's, it's going to, and it'll drop off their record and all of this stuff. So here you are, you get this car, it's stolen and usually wrecked out because they run, they run from the cops. It's another thing that you have to deal with. That's why you just, all of these factors now you've got a juvenile doing this, their life's at risk from the police because of the, the nature of what they're doing. They have guns. Mm-hmm. People don't believe that. Mm-hmm. They do. They've got guns. Um, most of them are smart enough not to do anything dumb with it when the police get involved, but you never know. Um, and you do, like I said, the amount of work you do, you have to double it because when you do a juvenile, there's a packet that you have to do for juvenile oh, yeah, cases. So um, it's not just a normal case. You, you have to duplicate your work. Um, you kill like 40 trees in the process. And uh, for for nothing to happen for a detective that has to work a juvenile case all the way through like that, it is a big kick in the butt to to know that it's not going anywhere. So that's why what I that's what I'm referring to when detectives like me that see a juvenile case, oh god, it's such a headache. It's a, like you get no joy from it. There's right. no joy all around. So here's the education component. Everybody, pay attention. All right. Okay, so. I did two tours out at Juvenile. My first tour, I did like, I don't know, 15 months. My second tour, they called me Gun Girl because I handled all of the gun crimes associated with juveniles through a, a grant with the Department of Justice. And the first time I went out there, I was like you. I was like, what are we doing? Like the case comes through intake. The probation department decides what's going to happen if the case is even going to come to us. Like, you mean to tell me we can't tell the judge what the punishment should be? Like, what is this? Yeah. And my husband, who was working, I, I met him out there. Um, he was the one that made me understand, you've got to change your mindset when you're out here. Juveniles are treated differently because they're kids. And the whole goal of the juvenile system is to rehabilitate them, yes. to make them better, more productive citizens. So. You can't, you, we, we have a, um, I guess the best way, a, a hierarchy, if you will, we, we start with services and then we move up the chain providing more services until we can, until we've exhausted all the services that the juvenile department has. And then that's when you send them like to TYC. Basically. Yeah. And so it took me a long time to change, even change my understanding. Cause I was like, but these kids are like doing bad stuff. Like yeah. they're they're breaking in houses, they're breaking in cars, they're shooting people, they're running around with guns. Like, but I have I always had to come back and tell myself, but they're kids. Um, and so rehabilitation is the goal until rehabilitation, until all the 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 modes of rehabilitation have been exhausted. Mm-hmm. And then we go into the next steps. Yeah. And so I get it because I was like you. And I remember going out there and my, hu- and my husband told me, he's like, you know, a lot of these kids have mental health issues. Mm-hmm. And I was like, these kids need their butts whipped. Like, that's what mm-hmm. my daddy would have done. And my, my husband's like, no, no, Tiff, it's, Tiffany, it's really. If daddy's there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. They, these kids really, like mental health is real. Yeah. And it wasn't until I went to juvenile that I realized mental health really is real. Like it's these kids are many of them that come in really do suffer from some mental health issues. Mm-hmm. And many of them suffer from 
um, not having mentors around them to teach them differently than what they yeah. see, whether it's a father, a big brother, a pastor, you know, whatever yeah. it is. And so I, I've, I have become sympathetic is not the right word. I've become a little more understanding over the years when it comes to juveniles. And I know it's a lot of work for y'all, mm-hmm. but if we're doing what we're supposed to do and the juvenile department is doing what they're supposed to do, which I think people have concerns about that right now. Mm-hmm. Um, we can turn some kids around before they get to. Yeah. I'm, I'm on board with that. Actually, that's, that's not me as a cop. I don't look at it and go, Oh, this 10 year old needs to go to jail. Like, Good. <laughs> I, I don't look at it like that. Um, if I came across that way, I just didn't articulate my full thought. But um, what I'm when I look at it, it just like what you're saying, my point is, it, why is it coming to me? This shouldn't this shouldn't make it to me. This needs to go to our resources, our rehabilitative resources. Maybe uh, I see. Maybe have a, a police section that is. I'm, we do have a police section, but that case should go directly to them, and it like. That whole criminal process like shouldn't even be the same. Shouldn't even be an option. It shouldn't go through me as a general assignment detective. And now here I am. I'm I'm processing a case just like I would anybody else. But now you just made me do all this work for something I know that's not even what I want to happen. But I have no choice. I have to do what, you know, I'm mandated to do. Handle this case just like I would anybody else. So let's get a process involved that that I don't want to say dumbs it down, but just pushes it towards something that's going to get them more help versus you know the the the, the criminal side of things. So I guess the question I have is how many of the juvenile cases that you've worked and processed had adult co defendants. Um, I would say say 70% of those have some sort of adult accompanied with it. I asked that question because it kind of makes sense for you to do it if they're, I mean, because you're going to, you have to do it anyway for the adult. True. So I can see it happening for the juveniles that have adult co-defense. I'm making notes because I'm, I'm very interested in what you have to say about this. Um, but the other 30% or so, that's the guess, are juveniles who are just out there doing stuff. Yeah. Like either the, by themselves or with other juveniles. Like the like the famous kid said, I just wanted to do hood rat stuff. <laughs> Did you ever see that video? <laughs> no. He stole his grandma's car. No, I don't think I've seen it. Oh my God, it's so funny. He gets interviewed by the, the media. His grandma's right there. And he's like, I just, he's like, why'd you take your grandma's car? He's like, I wanted to do hood rat shit. Oh, <laughs> I think I have seen that. So funny. Oh, but that, yeah, that's kids. Just their brains aren't developed. They, they're kids. They don't make the, the, the right decisions. Our brain doesn't even stop, you know, developing until we're around 25 years old. So, um, but there's certain paperwork that has to be done for them though, because they have to, they have, there's, there is, I'm pretty sure this is right. There is by law some statistical data and stuff that has to be maintained. Yeah. So maybe that's why. True. But like, I, so the way I kind of look at it is, um, you know, you get a guy that commits, um, I don't know, uh, I'm making this up. He, he commits a homicide, but in the act of doing that, he committed a burglary and then he vandalized the thing, you know. 
The homicide detective is only going to handle the homicide. He ain't going to go through and process that burglary. A, a general assignment detective is. So, same thing. You get, you know, a stolen vehicle case. You know your main guy is this adult. The juvenile part, that needs to be pushed to the juvenile section where you have detectives that specialize more with juveniles and can start the process because the other side of the house that maybe you can help me with. So you guys don't have a juvenile unit? There is, but it's, it's, they're the liaison between just processing the juvenile cases. It's like, I, I build the whole thing. I give it off to them and then they give it to the family courts or however that works. Why can't they build it? Um, staffing people. I don't know. Okay. Because they'd be doing it for the whole city versus one side of town would probably be one argument. Um, I don't know. For certain. But I see your point. My point being that the juveniles cutting the problem off at the root is how we stop recidivism. So going after the juveniles in a rehabilitative manner setting Mm -hmm. is more advantageous to everybody. Um, So that's where I'd want to see that go towards. However, a lot of times that I've seen in rehabilitation is we're only trying to rehabilitate the juvenile and we are not rehabilitating the parent. And that is a huge issue that I have because I've got, I get, you know, you show up to these houses sometimes and you're like, I see the issue. It's a parent that doesn't know how to parent because she was raised by somebody that didn't know how to parent and they were raised by, you know, another single parent that didn't know how to parent. So you got generations of people that don't even know how to parent to begin with. And I hate saying that because nobody can tell another person how to parent, but there are some standards that need to be there for raising your kids. And then like you pointed out earlier, most of the time they're being raised by their friends. Mm -hmm. So that's the rehabilitation that I would like to see some sort of. So they actually have one uh, in Tarrant County. It's called family preservation. Okay. And um, it is designed to teach families how to interact with each other better um i mean believe it or not i've i've had you know you know parents mothers mostly basically say can y'all come get little earl because i can't i I can't do anything with him him i can't do anything with him and so family preservation is a is a program that's available in Tarrant County that the juvenile department actually uses to help parents learn how to parent and how to cope with uh, the stress. Cause many of these parents have their, their child is not their only stressor. They are trying to work. They're trying to make ends meet. They're trying to raise other kids. They're trying to, you know, whatever it is life. Um, and so family preservation is designed to help them do that. And it's also designed to help the children learn communication skills so that they can have a better relationship with their parents. So there, so I say that to say there are services out at juvenile. The sad part for me is that your child has to come into the juvenile justice system for people to get access to them. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. And so um, that's one of the things that I want to work on for the county. Okay. That's a good one. Um, There's something called uh, cognitive behavioral therapy that um, it's a, that's a generic term. It gets very specific, but um, it basically, it's kind of a program where uh, 
you you get with the parent. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily the police department, the social workers, the you know juvenile like Akimbo or something like that. I don't mm-hmm. know who specifically. I don't specialize in this, but I've seen the research on it, and it's highly successful when it's followed through. But it basically holds the parent just as accountable with the child, meaning if the child's required to go to this therapy, this, that therapy or whatever, the parent is also required to take classes in this, that, and the other. And if the parent doesn't go, then they're both held accountable. So it's kind of like the, you know, you can't just go make your kid do stuff while right. you, you sit at home. It, yeah. And, and there are programs like that through juvenile too. Mm-hmm. And if the parents don't participate, then they can be held in contempt for not like doing that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I interviewed uh, a guy on the podcast recently out of Arlington. Um, his name's Robert Walsh. I don't know if you ever heard of him. Uh, if you end up getting the position you're looking for or you keep staying on the juvenile path, he's a good one. He started a nonprofit that basically mentors troubled young men. What's it called? Um, it's called, I need to ask me. Give me one second. It's right behind this. I'll get it. Because I'm making notes. You said Robert Walsh? Yes. NEX Metropolitan. NEX. What does NEX stand for? I don't know. I think it's kind of like that fancy uh, generational thing to say next, but it's next Metropolitan. Okay. You know, um, he's got, uh, I really like what he's, he's a homicide sergeant. Um, really? Yeah. So somewhere in this area. Yes. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Impact Tactical. Impact is a tactical outfitter for the men and women of our military, police, fire departments, and other public safety around the country. Impact's core beliefs is that fearless men and women protect our freedom and safety should have access to the best tactical performance apparel, equipment, and tools on the market. And they shouldn't have to go broke to get it. I've used Impact for about 11 years, and I can attest that they do live up to their core values. So you get a personal recommendation from me. You can find them at impacttactical.com. That's M-P-A-K tactical.com. And be sure to tell them that two cops, one donut sent you. Um, and uh, he, um, his part of his thing that he does that I really like, um, he does this thing called hoods and hoodies. And uh, he mentors his, the, the, you know, the kids, um, and teaches them like from a police perspective, like here's what here's what you're wearing, here's what we see. But he also teaches cops, here's what they're wearing, this is what they see. And it's kind of a cool, you know, it's a it's a neat way because these kids a lot of times, you know, it's summertime, they're wearing a hoodie and they're wearing the Jordans, and what they see is Oh, I look fly. I'm fashion. Like mm-hmm. this is how I'm, you know. This but that's not what you see. But that's not what we see as cops. Now, I'm a little different. I grew up where I grew up. I, I kind of have a different background. So I, when I see it. He asked me that question. I was like, that's, you know, that's a style. Like that's what I wear. And he's like, all right, put your cop hat on. Like, okay. Yeah. Suspect, you know, black hoodie, black shoes, black pants, whatever it is. I was like, yeah, yeah. That comes out all the time. He's like, exactly. He's like, but, you know, he pointed out, he's like, you grew up a little different. He's like, so. You see that where some cops, they didn't grow up that way. A lot of cops, they didn't grow up that way. So it's a, it's a way to kind of like show them and let them see like this is kind of how they're looking at it versus how we look at it. And if you have that understanding, less mistakes can happen or hopefully less mistakes happen. But you guys have a hard job 
police officers. It is. It is. It's a hard job. It is a hard job. And um, you all have to make like split second decisions, you know, like that. Um, And make these assessments so that you can make the best decision that you can with what you've got. And it's, it's, it's a hard job. It's um, one of the things that I, I've always been kind of interested in and kind of concerned with is having worked in the gang unit for so many years. Um, well, I'll, I'll give you an example because I'm, I'm, I don't want to, I don't want to just ramble on. There was a, a officer. Um, he was a Fort Worth officer, I think. And his name was Crane, if I recall correctly. Um, maybe not Crane, but he worked in Butler housing. Okay. And he was uh, an MPO. And he made it a point to get to know everyone in Butler. So he knew families, he knew their children, he knew the parents. I mean, he, he created an environment where people didn't fear him. Yeah. And I just remember when I first went into the gang unit in 2004, we had lots of crime in Butler, like a whole lot. Yeah. And even though crime didn't stop, it felt like to me, at least it got better when he was there. And um, so I say all that to say, one of the things that I've always been interested in are police relations with our community and how we can build trust mm-hmm. between the two. That's the whole point of this podcast. I know. Yeah. And I love it. <laughs> I appreciate it. Because that is, you know, that is how, uh, when, when people begin to see each other as human beings, um, as much as they can, at least, mm-hmm. then I think it makes a difference when, 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 when people, when people in, in certain segments of our community don't fear you to the point that they feel like they have to run. Mm-hmm. Um, and police officers don't fear them to the point that they feel like they have to use force. I think and you tell me if you think I'm I'm wrong on this cuz I've always felt like you know cuz I've done some of the, the some of those cases the critical police incidents and I always felt like you know if 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 people didn't fear one another if there wasn't that element of fear around some I've I've always felt like the outcomes could have been different. Mhm. Do you agree with that? I'm curious. What do you think? Because you're the one on the street. I don't think it's a mutually exclusive thing. Oh, I definitely agree with that. I think you. I think it's both. I think it's a little bit of both sides of that. Yes. Um, one, I, I definitely think fear is a healthy thing to have because it keeps you sharp. It doesn't let you get flat. Um, but I think more so than fear is what needs to, what will help fix things more is training. And I know people are going to be like, geez, we train enough. There's so much training. It's not that there's too much training. I think we put the wrong emphasis on certain training. 
So you're um, talking like de-escalation training or you're right, talking, okay. Right. So yeah. we're, we're, we're renaming things that have been around forever. De-escalation is verbal judo. Verbal judo is community policing. Community policing is just being Bob from the corner that knows how to talk to people. So gotcha. You know what I mean? We're repackaging, figuring out new ways to make classes, to make money across the nation. That's what these people are doing. That's my opinion. As a person that was a academy instructor for three years, I've got my master's degree in criminology and criminal justice. I, I look at these things. I'm no, nerd. I appreciate that because so, that's that's a that's a good perspective. Um, yeah. But if you want to get down to the roots of where I think some of the things need to do go into is if you come in for the hiring process to be a cop, you go through this big, long ass background check. Right. And it checks everything from under the sun to make sure you're qualified to be here. How long is your interview, your face to face interview? Typically 20 minutes, half hour, maybe at a big agency or some agency. It's got a lot of time, an hour. Yeah, I was thinking 30 minutes. Yeah. So. 30 minutes of time that I have to ask you all the same questions and I can't veer off because there's an HR issue. Mm -hmm. So I have to be fair across the board. How can I tell if you're a people person? How can I tell if you have social skills? I can't. But if I suspect you of being a person that lacks social skills, I can't do anything about that. Social skills is what gets officers in trouble. Mm -hmm. Their mouth. Mm-hmm. It's not their fault that they can't talk to people, but you can't necessarily be trained in the amount of time it takes in an academy to be somebody that is decent at talking to people. So for you, it is not just training, but it also sounds like hiring. Yeah, that's the root. Hiring, that's my first, that's my front. Give police departments more autonomy to prevent people that lack social skills from getting through. Because so I, th- important. I think that is more because think about it. Once you don't know what to say, what happens? You become unconfident. If you're already unconfident in your ability to talk, that's a problem. Now, unconfidence is going to lead to hesitation. Hesitation escalates things because you didn't handle this, this, you know, pressure pot that's building up. You didn't handle it right away because you weren't confident enough to do it. And then we get into the, the, the control tactics, the defensive tactics. Cops that are unconfident and don't know how to talk their way out of a situation are going to rely on their Batman belt before they ever rely on going hands-on. And then the public doesn't like, they don't like either. So I'll give an example. I'm dealing with a subject that I see all the signs. I'm, I'm, I've been a cop 17 years. I can articulate the hell on anything I need to. Um, you know, I saw his fists were, were pumping. He was clenching his fist. Uh, his right foot went back. He bladed himself. He was taking, he's starting to take a fighting stance. I saw his jaw start to clench. He stopped talking. So I slapped him across the face and put him in cuffs. The public sees from a video, the guy was just standing there. And all of a sudden that officer slapped him for no reason and put him in cuffs versus rookie officer stands there, sir, 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 sandwiches him to death to the point this guy builds enough confidence that now he's in a fight. Now that officer goes to a gun, a taser where I handled it right away and I didn't allow it to escalate into what I know what will eventually come to fruition. An officer that wasn't good at talking, wasn't confident, he went right, and maybe he, I don't want to say he caused a deadly force situation, but it became a deadly force situation because it wasn't handled right away. And these are the things that officers have to deal with. And 
I'm of the kind of the old school method. I would rather have to go physical with my hands or my feet or my, you know, whatever versus using anything on my Batman belt, because I know the potential for risk is high. That's why they call right. them intermediate and deadly force weapons. So I'd rather use like personal, they call these personal weapons for anybody out there listening, your hands, your feet, your fists, your, your <laughs> those are your knees. Those are personal weapons. They look bad. Violence never looks good. Right. But sometimes it prevents. And that it's, it's a hard thing to make people understand that don't grow up. It, it, I shouldn't say grow up. They just aren't around that. They're not around any sort of violence. You got people, we have people coming through the academy more and more. I would say 80 to 90% of them have never even been in a real fight in their life versus cops. You talk to the cops that were hired in the 80s, the 90s, um, early 2000s. You know, the majority of them had been in a real physical fight in their life. And that's, that's eye-opening. That tells you the difference in the culture, the policing that's coming down the line. Well, now you've got social skills are becoming less and less with cell phones and everything. People are buried in their yeah. phones. So I, I I could keep going on that, on that part, but that is that the, the root get back to where we were talking about the root one. I would like the ability to have some, some social skills test, some ability to give the police to go, you know what? He looks really great on paper. We agree. Everything else looks matches up, but I think, this person's social skills are he's he's got to develop those more. So what if you have I'm I'm just playing devil's advocate. You've got someone who clearly demonstrates that they may have an issue with social skills, but they meet all the other criteria. You hire them anyway. Uh, me personally, no. Yeah, me but I mean, but if I mean, it, the departments, whatever department yeah. it is. Yeah, but that that's what happens. Yeah, and and you will get. I could tell you, it, experienced officers, in my opinion, are, we read people. We know how to read people. I can go into a room and I could be pretty, pretty damn accurate on, on assessing people and their demeanors. And, you know, if I think that they've got a, a mindset that can, uh, they'll give up easily or that they're, they're stubborn or whatever. But um, being an academy instructor, I remember watching these guys their first week. I'm like, here's my list. And I got my list written down of all the ones that I think are going to quit, um, are going to be a problem, whatever it is. So I'm keeping an eye on them. Um, and inevitably with probably about 99% accuracy, either quit, fired, um, you know, got charged sometime later on in the career, uh, you know, which is another thing I would love to talk about officers. People don't understand. So one of my I'm rambling, but no go. I'm I'm one, I'm enjoying yeah. this. So actually, one, um, my friends back in Flint, um, very uh, different opinion on cops back home than, versus down where we're located. We're very supported here, which is why I love where I'm at. Um, and I think support is a big way to judge the thermometer of your police department. But uh, they'll call like, cops never hold other cops accountable. Cops are never getting in trouble for anything. And I'm like, where I'm at. They have been fired or charged every year at the department that I'm at. Somebody has at least one and there's been multiple, but I said, you don't see that because we're doing what we're supposed to do. We hold them accountable. That's right. You got to, and because it makes the whole department better. Right. 
We, but you don't see that in the news because that ain't sexy. Nobody cares if the cops are holding cops accountable. You're supposed to do that. That's your job. What they do care about is when they think somebody's getting un, you know, getting favorable treatment or being told to, you know, whatever, and they're not being held accountable. And that is makes the news way, way more than you'll ever see of a cop getting, you know, getting arrested for a DWI and then losing his badge and still being charged for the DWI later. Like they don't see that stuff just doesn't make the news. So, um, I don't know how to fix that. I don't know how to make people see that. And I'm not, I definitely don't want to keep pinning cops in a bad light. I want people to want to do this job. Right. But I think the way you make people see that is you, you actually have to have create an environment where people can actually talk about it. You know as what I mean? As what? Like well, all the things that you're just talking about, like yeah. education is what I'm talking about. Yeah. Because I I go out and talk to people about just about what we do in the DA's office. You know, people have these perceptions and and it's listening to you talk. Prosecutors and police officers are a lot alike in a lot of ways. Oh, for sure. Because I can tell you the, the prosecutors who don't have really good people skills are the ones who don't do well. Right. Um, They don't know how to talk to people. Um, They don't know how to talk to a witness or a victim to make them feel at ease or make them feel comfortable enough to come in and talk about whatever it is they're talking about. Mm-hmm. They turn people off and people are like, I don't want to talk to you. They hang up the phone. They, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. so, so we share that in common because both of our jobs are very people focused. Yeah. And every person that we come in contact with is different. Like none of, not everybody is the same. Yeah. Um, and I just started rambling and I forgot what I was <laughs> you were talking about the similarities between policing and prosecution. Yeah. Um, there, there just, there just is, there's a lot of similarities. And as I'm listening to you talk, I'm just reminded of that. Yeah. Um, I guess that was it. Yeah. It's it, so my frustration, you know, I see, I, it's one of those things, make me chief for a day, you know, I'll fix it all. Um, which, you know, make me DA for yeah, four years. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I've, I've got this idea of one, the social skills for the root, you know, of hiring that will prevent getting some of the people that become problems as cops within that first zero to five years. And, um, then the other side of the house for me is, and you, you might laugh at this, but grappling. Grappling training, jujitsu specifically, I like it the most. Um, it literally is the most gentle of arts. Uh, but I've practiced that since 06. Um, it has made me so confident in my ability to deal with people that I will be chasing after a bad guy, laughing and talking to him. As I'm running behind him, like, dude, you need to like, stop. You ain't going to outrun me. Like I'm trying to have a conversation with them to show them like, I am not threatening you. Um, I've had guys try to fight me and it's literally like trying to fight a five-year-old. Um, you know, it depends on their size. Size does kind of make a difference. Um, but it makes you extremely confident and confidence is what prevents you from escalating to something that you right. don't need to use. An officer that doesn't have a skill set in the worst possible scenario, which is getting put on the ground, um, is a fish out of water. You know what I mean? Uh, you truly have your eyes open, and that ends up being 
uh, I don't want to say a last rate because it becomes a resort way quicker than it needs to be if we took the time to train properly. Um, I suggest rather than giving an incentive to officers to pass their fitness test every year, which I think is a great thing. I love that program because it does tend to keep cops a little more fit. Um, I want an attendance, uh, of a local gym or local gyms that are supported and backed by police officers that are certified that know better. They're not going to just go to some, you know, yeah. crazy gym that's going to make them. I, you keep an attendance record and, and you need to go for two years regularly. You know, if you get hurt or whatever, like that can be extended. You'll have doctor's notes or whatever. You go on vacation that just goes on to the end of your sentence, mm-hmm. so to say. <laughs> but uh, at least get two years in of consistent grappling training. Yeah. And I know that sounds like one that sounds too simple to now you got to worry about your guys getting hurt. Well, you need to be fit anyway. And I promise you, use as a force will lower dramatically statistically significantly <laughs> well the military does that don't they something yeah they, they have um military combatives yeah um and it's it's one it, again it's it's just a, a training stint it's gotcha. only you know it's only a few months and then once you're through it you, you touch up on it every so often but it takes the general person 10 to 16 years to get a black belt it just, it, i'm just giving a, a window out there so people understand but muscle memory, like if you train, you could literally train jujitsu every, you know, other day for a year. And you, if you stop, completely stop, and you never practice it again, you're going to lose it. But at least after two years, one, hopefully, the, the goal would be I built a habit. I built a habit and you continue to train. Maybe even offer an incentive like, hey, if you decide to keep going, we will keep paying for your membership, but you still need to keep making attendance. So am I too old for this? No. Good. No. Because I'm, you're. My dad's 60. I'm thinking about it now. Still does it. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's it's like anything else. You just, you condition your body just like everything else and you get what you put into it. So I'm a big, big, like that's my biggest push. If you want to lower use of force, if you want to lower problems, because I'll challenge anybody, go look at my police record. Show me how many uses of force I have. And I have trained and trained and trained in grappling. And I, I a hundred percent attribute that to my social skills and my confidence in going into a situation that if I do have to go hands on, it's not going to be an issue. So you, that's where I was going earlier. Education piece. Yes. That's where I was because I think one of the biggest issues just sitting here talking to you, listening to you talk about use of force and how we can decrease it. I would never have known any of this had I not sat down and talked to you. Mm-hmm. And if more people would just sit at tables and talk about it, it would make more sense. Like I, as a prosecutor, having seen and worked with law enforcement, that's why I say y'all have a tough job. Right. Because I understand like what you all have to do yeah. and deal with every day. That's my number one fix when people are bitching about cops. I'm like, have you ever done a write-in? Yeah, do a ride-along. Do a write-in. Yeah. Ride-along. And, uh, and, and, you know, I just, I, I feel like people need to come to the table and have conversations. Yeah. And, and I know, I know somebody out there is like, mm-hmm. we talk all the time about this. Oh, my God. 
But do we do we talk, but do we listen? Mm -hmm. That's the question I have. Like we can talk about this all day long and people can, you know, get in rooms and complain and people can talk and people can defend themselves and do all that stuff. But are we really listening to what it is people are saying? Are are people in 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 the community listening to police officers to understand like what the day is like for you guys? Yeah. And are police officers listening to citizens to understand what it's like for them? Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I perhaps I'm a little being a little naive in my thought process. Um, I've been told that I I can be that sometimes, but. I, I really do think that when people get together and start yeah. understanding each other a little better, it changes the mm-hmm. dynamics of relationships. Well, this is this is kind of my theory on how that fix happens through education. Rather than, let's say we do a town hall meeting, like, all right, citizens, tell me what's the problem. Okay, now I'm going to talk at you and tell you, me as a cop, my tools available and how I can fix this problem. That's not what I need. I need... Got to see it. I need SWAT officer Joe to come in. Okay, guys, this is a SWAT officer. He's going to sit down and over the next hour, two hours, three hours, however long it takes, he's going to tell you who he is, where he's from, what it took for him to become a SWAT officer, the training involved, um, what he thinks they're doing well, where he thinks they can improve. Okay, now we've just spent all this time. We humanized a little bit. We educated, not educate like you doing this. And now... Let's open the floor. Do you guys got questions for a SWAT officer? Not what's going on on your side of town. Right. You you need to know. So the next time they see SWAT on the news, they're not going to go, oh, they're killing machines. All they do, that's their only job. No, no, no. I talked to SWAT officer Joe. He told me, like, this is what they go through. Here's all their training they go through. And then I got to ask him all the myths and things that I heard. Right. And then we have another session. Now we sit and we talk down to NPO, you know, Darty. And they sit there and they go through and they do the same exact thing. Now you're learning about every position that your police department has. And the, the, the thing that often causes an uproar is one is disconnect. There's no, now they can say, well, I know that position. They may not need to know that officer, but they know that position and what is involved in it. Um, and then you got the humanizing factor of it. Well, we sat down and talked to that particular officer that's, that's getting, you know, drugged through the ringer. And, that is how you start breaking down that those arguments that come from ignorance. Right. And when I say ignorance, I don't want to upset anybody. I'm not calling you stupid ignorance. It's just like you didn't know. You, you didn't know. know. Yeah. So. It's the same thing with, with my job. The, why I love what you're saying. I hear people all the time complaining about things like, I'll give you an example. You know, somebody, you know, made bond and they're back on the street and they're still out there doing bad stuff. Yeah. Or um, why was this person charged with this offense and this person wasn't? Why did this person get a life sentence and this person only got 15? Yeah. You know, so we hear that all the time as prosecutors. Mm -hmm. And if I, if I were able to sit down and explain to people like why it is that every case is different, every fact pattern is different. Every defendant is different. Mm Mm-hmm. Everything is different. Like, so there is no cookie cutter. Like, n- not every murderer gets life, right? Not every child molester gets a life sentence. And so education is key because I don't think that people really understand sometimes 
how it works. And I, and I, I don't have a problem at all sitting down with people and just explaining. And when I do, when I sit down with people and I explain it to them, mm-hmm. they're like, Oh, I'll give you a perfect example. I had a friend. He was always on Facebook talking about the criminal injustice system, mm. talking about police, talking about prosecutors, how everybody, you know, they're all working together to, 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 you know, they're, they're not trying to see justice being done. They're just trying to get convictions. They're this, 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 this. And I remember saying to him, I said, his name is Chris. He's not listening. He'll, he'll never listen. <laughs> but I remember saying, Chris, why don't you go down to the courthouse? Just sit in the back and watch what happens. Just educate yourself on the process. Like I know everybody can't do that because they work and I, I get it, but Chris could. Mm-hmm. And I don't have time for that. Blah, blah, blah. Well, next thing you know, Chris gets a jury summons. And I said, Chris, I want you to go to, you know, he's, I don't want to be a juror. I don't want to blah, blah, blah. Well, no, you do because you need to know how things work. Yeah. So he ends up long story short, he ends up going down. He gets picked. Okay. On an aggravated robbery case. Oh, so he gets a good one. He find they find the person guilty and they sentence them to like 22 years in prison. And then he sends me a, he, cause he can't post it like on his Facebook page for the world to see. Yeah. But he sends me a message later and he's like, I learned so much from just being in there. Now I understand like, and I said, that's what it takes yeah. for people to understand. Like you have to, you have to have someone explain it to you. And if you don't have someone that can explain it to you, well, you kind of have to see it like, yeah. and you can mm-hmm. courthouses are open. Go down and, you know, for yeah. anybody who wants to go, go down and sit around and see what we do. One of the things I've learned about um, as a detective on bad bails like that, mm-hmm. and this is for cops listening, um, lazy detective work. So what I mean is you write the warrant. You put this guy in jail. Basically, I got to write up all the details and give it to a judge and show this judge why this person needs to, you know, we need to go out and arrest this person. I will see the bare minimum of facts just to get what they need. Where me, people ask me like, how the hell did you get a $250,000 bond on a home burglary? I'm like, well, let me show you. I painted a picture of habitual offense offender that was leading to violence. And then the next, the next logical step without saying it is this guy's going to kill somebody. And lo and behold, I get a stubborn judge that reads it and asks me some more questions about it. Like, because I made them mad about that. Like you could see there's an emotional response behind that, which typically you don't get from a judge. Because they're, they, you know, they're impartial, unbiased, all that stuff. But all the elements were there. Right. It was that emotional factor that I was trying to get at. Because this person, I, that was my biggest fear was I'm going to let this guy walk. And he's going to kill the next guy. Because he was, this guy, he was picking, I ended up getting a merit award for this. He was basically victimizing a elderly and mentally disabled guy. And, uh, and his brother who was his caretaker. Um. He was 72 and his brother's 84. Um, I had taken the time to read the history and uh, this had been went back five years. This guy slipped through the system for five years and it 
pissed me off. Like I was like, Oh my God, like I can't believe this has gotten through. And then I go back and I'm starting to look and I'm like, no wonder he got bailed out. The bail was so low. I mean, there's, you're not, you're not doing what you should be doing as a, as a detective. You got to paint a picture for the judge. So he understands the severity. So here's the other little education piece about that. For everyone who's listening or watching judges set bail. Yes. Not you. Know, not, you. <laughs> not us. Like yes. people get mad at DAs. They're like, the bail is, you know, blah, blah, blah. And the DA's office. And I'm like, no, judges set bail. Yes. Now, do we have instruments, both the defense and the state, to either ask for the bail to be lowered or ask for the bail to be raised? Yes, we do. But initially, and, and even if we do that, even if I were to file a motion to ask the court to reconsider this person's bail, the judge is still the person that is setting the bail amount. Yes. And I want people to understand that. <laughs> yes. It's not the DAs. Yes. Yeah. It, <laughs> but but we. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by HRH Combat Arms. They can turn your vision into reality. They specialize in gunsmithing and Cerakoting. Your Cerakote specialist is Air Force veteran and retired police sergeant Paul Ware, a.k.a. the Sarge. He can Cerakote your firearms, auto parts, tools, even your sports equipment. This veteran-owned business is located at 5025 Saunders Suite, 103, Fort Worth, Texas, 76119. You can call them at 682-304-0363, and you can find them online at www.hrhcombatarms.com. That's www.hrhcombatarms.com. can, and we've done it. Like I've, Especially if you have someone who is on bond and they're continuing to violate the court's order. Yeah. Then we you know, routinely ask the court to hold their bond insufficient and raise their bond amount so that, you know, because they're, they're not doing what you say do. Yes. Um, And we can't trust that this person is going to come back into court if they're out running around doing whatever they're doing. Yeah. Can you explain how the, the bail works? Like, yes, they get a $5,000 bond bail. Yeah. So they, so let's say the court sets bail at 10,000. Um, Typically, the person has to come up with 10%. So that's a, I hope my math is not bad. That's $1,000. Yeah. And they pay a bail bondsman 1000 as a surety. And, and the bail bondsman serves as a surety that this person, once they pay me this $1,000, I'm going to make sure they come back to court when they're supposed to. And that's how it works. And so when they are released, typically the court will put conditions on their bond. And they'll say, Things like you have to report when you're told to report. If I, you have to come to court when you're supposed to come to court. You can't, you know, be out there committing new offenses while you're on this bond. You can't, you know, do all these, you know, various things. And if someone does what the court says and they come to court like they're supposed to, no problem. Right. The problems arise when people violate those conditions or they don't appear when they're supposed to. And when that happens, the court can forfeit their bond, which means they lose that money. And they go to they go to jail until such time as the court sets another bond, should they choose to do that, which they can do. And typically the judge will set a bond usually higher than the one that they had before. Yes. Usually. Sometimes the judge will reinstate the bond depending upon what the violation is. Uh, But that's how that works. Okay. Yeah. Because I think it shocks a lot of people when they learn like. They had a, you know, a $20,000 bond. How did they get $20,000? They, 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 they don't. don't. They don't. Yeah. 
They don't yeah. have to get 20. They have to get 10% of that, which <laughs> lowers it significantly. Mm-hmm. So when when I tell you I get a $250,000 bond on a guy that did a home invasion, like that is unheard of. That's a high dollar amount for that, is. that offense. Mm-hmm. But again, it's I'm, I'm trying to hold some detectives a little more accountable to invest in your case. If you personally think that this guy should not get out, the standards of practice need to change. So what do you think about, because I've heard some detectives and I've and some prosecutors too, um, who say, don't put, don't, don't put all that in your warrant. Just put, just put what is necessary in the warrant to get mm-hmm. them arrested because we, you know, we don't want to give too much to the defense. We don't want to give away too much information. Yep. Just what do you think about those? I, those so situations? I don't, I don't think it's ever, uh, um, an account in their head of it being something for the defense. I typically think it is one detective or whoever it is that trained them at one point in their career, they got their hand slapped for too much. And this usually happens at the jail when they're giving it to the jail sergeant and the jail sergeant reads all that. And he's like, dude, this is way too much. Like, I don't need all this. We just need the bear. So the judge signs it and that's it. That's where that comes from. When uh, th- this is where this is the point you, you actually are sending it home for me. This is exactly why I say the standards of practice need to change when it comes to training detectives. You know how I was trained to be a detective? Mm. Oh, hey, Detective Snuffy over there. We got new batch coming in. You're going to train that one. Okay, you, Detective such and such. Now, I got lucky. I had an awesome detective. Uh, shout out to Jake Brandon. Uh, he's amazing and he's passionate. That's. You give me those two things, man, I can, I can learn from you all day. Um, he, you know, truly cared about every case that he did. And, uh, his, it's just like anything else we're going through and he's like, I need you to, you know, it's just like writing, uh, report writing one-on-one. I need you to paint a picture, like paint that picture out, put everything in there that you think would be helpful. So I do that. You know how many times I've been to court since I've been a detective? And let me guess, none, none, zero times. Um, so in the reason that is, is because my reports are rock solid. The stuff that I'm putting together, it paints a picture, get a DA, the prosecutor, they look at it. If they don't think I have enough elements, they'll definitely let me know. But my report and my narratives nailing it. So how do we fix that? We need prosecutors to, to, you know, come to the Academy and, let them know later on in your career, this is what's going to happen. You're going to be told to dumb it down. Don't dumb it down. I want you to tell you if you, you because know, from a prosecutor's perspective, you know, we can't hide the ball anyway. So, right. It, I mean, we have to turn it all over to the defense at yeah. some point anyway. So. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, if you have a solid case, you have a solid case. What are you hiding? Yeah. There's nothing to hide. It's a solid case. Now, and that's y'all's job once it gets to that point. Yeah. If you can't prosecute a solid case, well, you got some learning to do. Well, and, and I and I remember my my second boss, Tim Curry, saying, you know, if you can't win on your facts, then you don't have any business trying. You know, that, you yeah. know, it's the facts are the facts. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and that's the battle between cops and prosecutors is us knowing what we need to give you the tools we need to give you to, to do your job and vice versa. Prosecutors need to let detectives or just regular street cops know like 
write it. If you feel it needs to go in there, put it in there. Don't hold anything back. You know, if you think that the roads being wet that night made a difference in this call, put the roads were wet. It had just got done misting. Put that stuff in there. Cause all too often we just put, you know, subjects showed up to store, uh, passed all points of sale. Uh, you know, so that's it. <laughs> well, no, so to, to, to all the, the police officers, uh, that might be listening right now yeah. or later, whatever. Um, I tried a case once where it's, it's actually kind of disgusting. So it's hard to try to describe it without how, how, how much can I go into stuff? Like as much as you want. I mean, it's kind of, I mean, just keep so, it, keep it anonymous, I guess. If you yeah. I'll keep to, it but... anonymous. I mean, it, the case is disposed, yeah. it, you know, the person has already been sentenced in oh, in see. prison, but it's just the, the nature of what I'm going to talk about for men might be difficult to hear. So I was working on a capital murder case in Fort Worth and this gentleman was in what I called a drug induced. He had been doing meth and stuff all day and, uh, you know, took off all of his clothes, goes into, you know, excited delirium style. Yes. Went into um, a stranger's home, broke in and ended up killing one of the persons and then the 80-something-year-old victim poured, like, concentrated lie, like, toilet bowl, like like a Drano. I mean, he had, like, burns all over his body. Well, the when the police got there, my suspect was sitting in his truck naked with blood all over him and just, right? Yeah. About... I don't know, a month before we get ready to start trial, maybe a little bit, a couple months before, I bring an officer in who was one of the first officers on scene who found the suspect sitting in his truck. And, you know, as we do when we meet with y'all, we give you your offense report and let you review it, and we're talking about it. And um, he goes, oh, yeah, I remember this case. This is the one where the guy was taking the, um, oh, God, what do you call it? It's a... it's a little thin piece of metal that you put like a drill bit. And he said, yeah, he was sticking it in his, in his, his penis. Hmm. Yeah. That's why I was asking how graphic I can be. Sorry. And I, and I remember looking at him going, this isn't in your report anywhere. (laughs) It's kind of an important. What? I mean, the guy is claiming insanity. Yeah. And, Two months before the trial, now you want to tell me about a thing in his <laughs> So, so I, I remember being taken aback by just the visual. Yeah. But also just the fact that it wasn't in there. Yeah. And so to your point and to all the officers out there, report writing is huge because mm. as prosecutors, we need to know it so that we can make sure the defense has it. Mm-hmm. But at the trial, it looks bad for you when you have to testify and say, well, I told the, the state that, but I didn't put it in my report. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, the defense attorney is going to beat you over the head over it every time. Yep. I mean, I, you saw a man doing that and you didn't think to put it in your report. <laughs> you know, right. it was it was. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I've been trying to get um, officers to do more often is narrate while they're on the call. Cause our body cams are going. Yeah. I'm constantly 
telling like what's going through my mind, like on the down times. All right. You know, I'm over here at this house. We're posted up right now. Um, I haven't heard any movement. Uh, I don't think anybody's home right now. I'm just listening to here. If I hear if somebody moves around, like, you know, that helps because I can, I can articulate that. I don't hear anything going on on my side of the house, you know, or maybe I hear shuffling around. I, well, I can hear somebody shuffling around. Uh, I'm going to be quiet now. I'm wait, I, I think they're getting ready to come out. That's better for you too. Right. Because when the day comes that you, I mean, the one, so let me just share one of my frustrations with what I, that I've had with police officers, which is this, and it's, it's not bad, but it is police officers do their job and they move on to the next case. Like, right. That's what you do. Yeah. But for us, you, you may have 10 cases on my desk. Right. And so when you come in to see me, you know, when I call officers are like, I don't, I don't, I don't have time for that. I'm, I'm that that's y'all's job now. I, you know, I'm not, you know, yeah. and I'm like, no, the case is not over for you until it's over. Yeah. It's, 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 it's for both of us. Like it's yeah. not over until it's over. But that is the culture of policing. That's how they're pushed. Cause what is it? Hey, hurry up with that call. You got another one holding in your beat. You got to get out there. You don't have the bodies, but the culture of policing is press, 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 move, 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 move. You yeah. keep moving. So that I, I get that mindset from them because oftentimes, probably 90% of the time, I, shoot, let's go 99% of the time. It is truly over and not, nothing ever comes of that call. Yeah. So that 1% of the time that you want me for that, I'm like. I got all the other crap going on. Like how serious is it? You know, what do you need? You know, and then it all comes down to what is the, they'll go back and they'll look at the case and they're like, this is a bullshit case. This is for, you know, a stolen toaster oven. What? <laughs> well, on. I was going to say too, in, in fairness, that o- only on those cases that those really serious cases, am I talking about? That? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to call you and beat you up over, you know, the burglary where the guy went in and made a ham sandwich. And yeah. you know what I mean? Like I'm not. Yeah. But th- I, I would argue that you need to make an example when you can. So when the time comes that I would rather learn the hard lesson from the ham sandwich call than learn the hard lesson, you know, when a person gets out of something major. So that's on us as prosecutors, because whenever I read a report um, you know, you all have cop speak, right? And we yes. know exactly what is happening when we first start reading. I don't write that way. Uh, you don't? No. So, I, I know what you mean. You know what I'm talking about? Somebody pointed out to me earlier in my career and said, the jury has to read this. And that's how I write all my reports. Yeah. So I, I, I can, I can, you know, sometimes I'll read a report and in the first like paragraph, I'm like, okay, I know exactly what happened here because it's this cop speak. But, um, we, you know, we we read these reports that you guys give us and that's what we have to work from when yeah. we're when we're trying to figure out is this a good case? Is it not a good case? Do we need to dump this case, you know, whatever the situation is. So report writing is like huge for us mm-hmm. in the in the DA's office. But, you know, it's it is on us to make sure that if you're not writing the report well, that we tell you. Right. And some of some prosecutors are afraid to do that. Like they're afraid to say, hey, it would have been really helpful. Let me give you a tip. 
just whenever you're doing X, Y, Z, make sure you do this. It'll mm-hmm. help us. It'll help you help you remember whatever. Um, and I don't think that we do that as much as we yeah. should. And I'm not talking about just police writing. I'm talking if we see, there are cases that I've had to dismiss because I knew even though the police officer didn't do it on purpose, when they come in my office and they talk to me about the case, I'm like, well, you can't, we're not going to get past a motion to suppress based on what you just told me. Yeah. And I have to explain to you why that is and then explain to you why I have to dismiss this case. And a lot of police officers, you know, they don't like it, but I think that's how we learn. We learn when we make mistakes. Yeah. That's how we, that's how we get better. Mm-hmm. I know that's how I got better. Yep. Yeah. It's so it, for all it, the cops out there, I did yeah. that too. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, it's a hard thing to do as a cop because we're the front line. And if you make too big a mistake, or sometimes it's not even that big a mistake in my opinion, but you went viral. And now all of a sudden politics are brought into police work and that drives me insane. Um, which comes to, I got first motion to suppress. Can you kind of give the dummies version of what motion to suppress is to people? So, um, motions to suppress are brought by the defendant and his lawyer. And basically what they are alleging in their motion is that the, the police, um, violated some constitutional protection that requires that the court suppress a piece of evidence. So whether it's a statement, whether it is, um, a fourth amendment violation, um, usually it's one of those two. Usually it's a piece of evidence or a statement Mm -hmm. that they are trying to suppress because they claim that you didn't do something correctly. So for instance, um, you know, the law requires that when a, uh, person gives a confession or gives a statement to the police, that's going to be used against them. You have to read the Miranda warnings, but you can't just read it. It also has to be either um, he has to orally uh, on video or in writing uh, say that he's read his rights, understood his rights, and he's waiving his rights. Right. Um, And I've had cases before where, you know, that wasn't done. Yeah. And, I've had to explain to detectives or police officers I can't use a statement because mm-hmm. you didn't follow 3822. You didn't you didn't do it right. Right. So that's what a motion to suppress is. Gotcha. And we have to we have to fight legally in court to make to try to keep evidence in. So one of my favorite um mythological creatures when it comes to Miranda warning is you'll see all too often like you're under arrest. Put your hands behind your back. Oh, you didn't. You didn't read him his rights. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you can confirm for me the way that I understand it is if I'm investigating, let's say a domestic. That's the easiest one to go after. I go up. I show up. I don't know if there's any violence that's occurred. I this could just be a verbal argument for all I know. I don't know that there's an offense yet. So I have to investigate. So my partner will talk to one part of the party. I talk to the other. We get together. He tells me his story. I tell him what my person said. Maybe we switch and kind of see if the stories keep matching up. But then we get together and we're like, all right, this guy, he's the aggressor. There's a chance of further violence. I'm going to put him in cuffs because I think that 
you know, based on what we've seen that he did do something and we, we can't let him stay here for the night. So, sir, turn around, put your hands behind your back. You're under arrest. You can't arrest me. You didn't read me my rights. No, I don't need to read your rights. Not for the rest yet. Yeah. Now I put cuffs on him and I say, all right, dude, why did you hit her? Like, you know, better than that. I can't ask him that he's under arrest, right? He's under custodial arrest. I have to read him his rights before I ask him that question. Right. That's how this works. So yes, I can put you in cuffs, put you in the back of the car, take you all the way down to jail. I don't have to ask you any questions. Right. So the trigger is custodial interrogation. Yes. That's the trigger. The person has to be in custody. And then there's a whole bunch of case law about what custody is, right? Am I free to go? Yeah. Am I free to go? Yeah, there's a whole bunch of case law. But it all and but there also has to be an interrogation. So usually the the issue isn't the interrogation part. Because people know when you're being I mean, you ask a question, that's interrogation. Right. Typically the issue is was this person actually in custody? And you have to have both before you read Miranda. Yes. So it, it's you're correct. One of, it's one of my favorite things. I see that on the movies and I see it actually Funny. in the news and social media all well, the time. The reason, let me tell you, it's different in every state. Oh, it's a state by state thing. Right. Because see, Miranda require well, Miranda requires custodial interrogation wherever you are. But each state has the right to make their make it make Miranda uh, they can make it more strict. Oh, okay. So Texas makes it more strict by saying you have to have it in writing or you have to have it on video. Not every jurisdiction requires that. I so like, I don't know, let's just say Tennessee. It, it might be sufficient for somebody to say, I read him his Miranda, Oh, but in Texas it isn't. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I haven't, I, I, you know, I was a cop in Michigan. Um, and coming down here, and I was a military cop in Montana, but we got to learn a lot of the state law. And my husband's an MP. Oh, where he was. Okay, yeah, I was security forces for the Air Force, mm-hmm. which is basically MP. Um, and my brother was EOD. Oh, in the Air Force. Is your brother interested in doing a podcast? I would love to do an EOD. Sure. He oh. works at the he works at the airport right now. He does it for uh, TSA. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so awesome. I'll I, ask him. I tried to transfer to EOD. I tried, but they because security forces was so undermanned, we were only like sixty five or seventy percent or something like that. They're like, no, oh, we can't let you. I let want. me just tell you, I'll I'll ask him. Yeah, see if he's interested. But but my brother is a is a geek and he's a nerd. I'm just telling you right now. I see. Are you kidding <laughs> <See>? me? <laughs> I, does your brother have a lightsaber? Because I do. No, he doesn't. <laughs> I have Darth Vader's lightsaber. But he, but he is, he does have a lot of techie toys like this, and I'm just telling you. Well, that's perfect. But I'll, I'll ask him. Ask him for me. Um, small world. I took a, a military buddy out to eat. He drove up here from San Antonio. Um, we did his episode and all that stuff. But <laughs> while we were out, we run into two guys. One was a Marine. One was an Air Force. They were. Um, TAC-P, I don't expect you to know that. But basically, their job is they go out with all the special units, like Navy SEALs, Green Berets, mm-hmm. um, all of those. And their job is to put a target, like a visual and laser target on things for planes to come in and blow up. Yeah, it's a it's a really hard job to do and to get. 
takes a lot of training and stuff like that. And uh, we ran into two of those guys, and now I'm going to get one of those guys. On the That's podcast. weird. So you saying EOD? I'm like, oh my god. Yeah, he was EOD for years. He he did like 20, 28 years. Oh dang. Yeah. Oh, shoot. And now he's working for TSA, so mm-hmm. he's getting two government retirements going. He's good. Oh, I'm jelly. <laughs> jelly. I'm still in. I still do the reserve stuff, but oh, um, do you? Okay. Yeah. All right. So I got another question. Okay. Um, this is going into more of the helping the public understand um, some myths and stuff about prosecution and DAs and all that stuff. How are you all evaluated in your job? Because it, one of the things that people want to attack prosecutors about, you guys are all about the numbers. You don't, you know, you ever seen the movie Law Abiding Citizen? Mm-hmm. I mean, that was the premise of that is like, I just wanted you to care and I wanted you to do what was right. That was the basic premise of that movie. Mm-hmm. His wife was murdered and all that stuff. And he just wanted the guy win, lose or draw. I wanted you to go after what was right. So if you are concerned about the numbers and that's how you're evaluated as a prosecutor, like, is that true for one? Is that how that works or how are you evaluated? You know, that's a really tough question. Um, I think um, for years we were evaluated just based on um how well we managed our caseload. So what that means is it's not about getting convictions and who's got, you know, the biggest number of, of, you know, sentence, the largest sentences. It was really more about, uh, does Tiffany, does Tiffany possess the judgment that is required to handle her cases, uh, and dispose of them in a way that seems just. And that's that's kind of like an, it, it's it's a very amorphous kind of I know it's it, there's nothing like real objective about it. Mm-hmm. It's it's just you when you know, you know. Yeah. It's morally, we, it, morally it's and ethically. Did you go after this the way you should? Right. Yeah. And that I think that's for years how we were, you know, evaluated. And you can pick that up from just watching lawyers and mm-hmm. how they interact. You know, when you have lawyers that talk crazy to defense lawyers, you know, you don't really treat people with respect. Um, when you have lawyers that are um, only trying the big cases. Yeah, cherry picking. Cherry picking. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, when you have lawyers who are trying the tough cases, even when people are telling them, you're going to lose that. You know. Yeah. And so that's why I say it's kind of amorphous. So we don't we don't have now let me be clear. There are and will probably always be prosecutors who think that their status as a prosecutor is measured by the number of convictions that they have. I don't like that. I don't either. I don't like but that. but I but I've met some. I know some. Mm-hmm. And so it's a thing. Yeah. Um, but I think for the most part, you just know when you're around them, when you're looking at how how they evaluate their cases. You know, people would come into my office all the time and say, hey, Tiffany, I've got this murder case. These are the facts. These are the issues that I see. These are the problems. You know, I, I don't really know if if. uh you know, this, this is not a life case. I think this is probably more like a 15 year case. You know, what do you think? That's when, you know, like these are people who are, 
who are um, emotionally they're thoughtful. Yeah, they're thoughtful yeah. about what it is they're doing. Yeah, and for me, that's how you measure how well a prosecutor is doing. Those people who are who are truly trying to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. What I like to say, the right thing for the right reasons. Yeah, that's when you know. And so when it, who is the checks and balances for prosecutors doing doing that? Who is that the DA's job? So certainly it, it will be the DA's job because you know. Everyone who works as a lawyer for the DA's office is deputized to basically stand in for the elected DA and do the work on their behalf. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, of course, it will be the DA's responsibility. But day to day, the DA will have a staff of a leadership team that is designed to supervise and evaluate that for them. So I, you know. If, if there is someone in the office who doesn't practice like that, I want to know about it. Gotcha. You got, you know, yeah, yeah. And, and that leadership team will be the team that will say to me, you know, this, this lawyer in particular is having some issues. They're not, they, yeah. they have a problem evaluating cases. Um, you know, there, 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 there were, I don't know of any now, but there were prosecutors who would just put the max on cases and just keep going. I mean, they never really even looked at the facts of the case or evaluate cases. They just kind of. Black and white about it. Very black and white yeah. about it. There's cops like that. Yeah. I, I, and I tell people, they're like, God, don't you hate robot cops like that? And I'm like, it's not my style. But if you stay consistent and you're always that way, I think that's an impartiality that it, it's not my way, but that's the beauty of being a cop. Right. Because you got discretion to do right. the job how you see fit. I'm not going to, not going to judge that guy. Is it the way I do it? No. But and prosecutors do, too. They have a great deal of discretion. Yep. And what makes prosecutors work well, I think, is giving them that discretion. Yeah, absolutely. The system would be. I, I mean, mean, if you micromanage well, everything that they do, I mean, yeah, they're going to make they're going to make really poor decisions all the time. Yeah. If you're going to give someone a job, you got to trust that they will do that job yep. until for some reason they give you a reason that you can't. Yep. Right. And so I work from that premise. I know body cameras. It's it's been a big. Um, oh, yes. Cultural shift for cops on discretion. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of times we feel we lost some discretion on things, you know, um, old school way. You get some dumb kid, 15, 16 years old in the car with his friends. They got a little bit of weed with them and you could see that they've got no record. They you about to teach them a life lesson. All right. Everybody out of the car, we put them through the ringer and then you say, all right, put it on the ground, pour your soda on it, you know, whatever it is. And you can't do that now. That's that was one of the old school ways of dealing with those situations because they just had, you know, a, a wake up call like, hey, like this has real consequences. You could get in major trouble for this. But and now you got body cams. You can't do that. Well, and now they've added laws where you guys can't turn your body cameras off. Right. And stuff now too. Yeah. So, yep. Um, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the things I want people to understand, and maybe hold on before I get to that point. Okay, body cameras. I'm gonna write that down. Body cameras and not turning off. Um, and there's some. There was another law that came down last year. Um, I'm trying to remember. It has to do with officers having to baby basically tell on other officers. Um. 
Do you know what I'm talking about? Having to tell on them? So if a police officer... Like a duty to report? Yes. I think we've always had that. No, they changed something about it. Really? I'm going to have to look it up. Listen, I'm going to tell you right now, especially the city I work in, if you do something illegal as a cop and I see it, you're fucked. <laughs> right, right. I'm not going to hide a crime for you. So, No, um, it's something. I'm going to find it. Okay. So idea for you, mm-hmm. um, because this is something that I've seen a disconnect in. I, I Let's put it this way. Not a disconnect. I've never seen it exist. Okay. How come cops are required to do all these town hall meetings and do all that stuff and you occasionally see a city councilman shows up to that maybe the mayor shows up to that you know who i've never seen the da the da i am so glad you mentioned that because that's one of the things that i've actually said i want to do how are you supposed to know what the concerns of the community are if you don't talk to if them. you don't talk to them that's right an example catalytic converters yep you big, have no clue big deal it's a big <laughs> it's a big deal and so yeah. there are the way i see it there are four county commissioner precincts in Tarrant County. And there are four quarters. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. So you go to County Commissioner Precinct 1, the first quarter, 2, the second quarter, yeah. and you just have town halls where you educate the public on yeah. what the DA's office is doing. Mm-hmm. You can educate the public on um, new laws that are coming into existence. Yeah. Uh, one of the and, and I think the reason that a lot of DAs kind of haven't been doing this so much is because, you know, we can't discuss the facts of pending litigation. Right. And so I think a lot of people, I would guess, because I, I mean, I would guess that because that would be a concern for me if when I become DA. There you go. So. um I, I can see that being a concern, but you can, there are other collateral issues and issues that, and concerns for the community that you can talk about mm-hmm. without going into, you know, specific cases. Like a Tatiana Jefferson right now is huge, right? Everybody mm-hmm. wants to hear about it. Everybody wants to talk about it. If the DA right now were to have town hall, she wouldn't be talking about a Tatiana Jefferson. You know what right. I mean? She yeah. She may be talking about, you know, understanding how it's affecting the community and that kind of thing, but she's not going to go into any facts and right. talk about the case. Yep. But I'm glad you mentioned that because that yeah. is something that I want to yeah. do. I would love to see that. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, especially on uh, some of the rougher sides of town that I go to, um, catalytic convert. I, I accidentally became an expert on that stuff. I ended up doing a task force on it and whatnot. Did you really? Oh, yeah. You would talk about being a nerd. I wrote a 40-page paper on what I did, how I attacked it, the success we had, the what didn't work, what worked, the language we learned, because you know how it is. In every mm-hmm. crime, there's some sort of mm-hmm. secret language they use. Mm-hmm. We created a list of about 100 suspects. One of those suspects ended up shooting a cop Wow! in the neck later on. I was brought into the real-time crime center where I was helping them locate this guy. We eventually caught him. But mm-hmm. all of that intelligence came from this catalytic converter task force thing so then i started learning about legislation and the law and where we're screwed up Mm -hmm. so if you ever get the right ears and you want to personally have somebody tell you exactly how to fix it because i've got all the answers on how to fix it just nobody wants to listen so i'm listening you want to hear it right now i'll tell you right now yeah what are you right now so um, i'm I'm writing it down as you're talking so here's one of the issues when cops pull over somebody we don't have the tools we need to 
to get them for the crime. Let's say I pull over a car and it's got 15 catalytic converters in it. Is mm-hmm. that normal? No, it's two o'clock in the morning. They have a sawzall sitting in the back. They've got a history of burglary. It still doesn't matter. I can't touch those catalytic converters because I don't know where they came from. They're not serialized. They don't have a VIN number on them. But if I were to catch those same people and I see two different credit cards with different names on them that aren't theirs, it's an assumed felony. Give me that same autonomy with catalytic converters. Because if you don't have a title or a registration or anything that shows me where this vehicle came from, it should be assumed that it's stolen. Now, there's more factors that go into it than just that, but that's my job as a cop to articulate the time of day, where we're at, what this is, you know. But I'm never going to give you a victim. That's where we have another problem. The state needs to become the victim because I cannot prove who this came from. Are we talking just catalytic converters right now? Yes. Okay. Specifically. It's a regulated metal. It falls under, um, what is it? Uh, not health code. Is it health and safety? No. I'd have to, I, I'd have to get, I, I've got it at, at the office, but um, it's under regulated metal. I know that. I just cannot think of specifically what it is it's under. Um, but, uh, yeah, that goes into the problem. It's, it's just, you can't, if I catch somebody that we know is involved with stealing catalytic converters, I can't do anything. I have to try to prove theft somehow because it's, it doesn't count as a recyclable like copper Mm -hmm. where I can get them for a felony on copper or recyclable material. All I've got to go on is regulated metal. If I'm going to go for regulated metal, cause it's got platinum, rhodium, iridium inside, um, not to mention the, the damage it does to these vehicles. You know, it's typically about $1,300 to get those fixed, give or take. I have one in the shop right now. Yeah, see? Um, and there's no way to, to, to guard it unless you have a garage. So we need the tools. We need the tools. I need That needs to become an assumed offense, and the state needs to be able to be the victim. Yeah, that is a legislative. Yeah. I tried reaching out to, I think his name is Brian Leach. I sent all this stuff and I just, I don't know, lost in the sauce. So that's interesting. Uh, one of the things I'm going to have in my office is a legislative liaison. Oh, that'd be wonderful. And so we, the, the office has always had one, mm-hmm. but it's someone who just, um, you know, they only do it like when the legislature is in session. Yeah. But this for me is someone who's going to be there year round all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and they're just going to be, uh, looking at some of our laws and trying to figure out what tools, as you say, yeah. are necessary and what tools maybe are not so necessary. Yeah. Um, and um, be an advocate for that and assist, mm-hmm. you know, the legislature down in Austin. Yeah. And understand where your most valuable tool to figuring out where these holes are at. Because yeah. I would have never known that catalytic converters were in the tool. I just started seeing yeah. every weekend I'd have like two cases. Yeah. And then all of a sudden that doubled and then it tripled. And I'm like, and I'm just one detective in this office. And I'm like, you guys get a bunch of catalytic converter stuff? Or is the, is the guy just giving me all the catalytic converter cases? No, it was going rampant across the city. And I'm like, why? Why is it that I'm a nerd? I, I got to answer the whys to everything. Of course. So I start looking and I'm like, oh my God, an F1 or F250 catalytic converter is $800. Like that's what you get for it if you recycle it. And a Prius is $4,000. Yes. And I'm like, how long has this taken? So now I'm getting videos of these offenses occurring and these guys are cutting them off in less than a minute. The risk reward is amazing. Mm-hmm. I 
I risk a minute of my time to get under this Prius and I made four grand. Four grand. Yeah, I mean, I did the basic stupid dummy math that let's say these guys go and take one a weekend or two a weekend. And I said, and let's say they're only worth $500. Not even the, and I know they're stealing the more high value ones. They're making 50000 approximately a year. Just, just on catalytic converters. Just casually taking them. And we know they're not casually taking them. I proved in that little task force thing we did that this is an organized crime. It's going across state lines. I was going to say. Yeah. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I could go all day on the catalytic converter stuff. But, yeah, unintentional expert. And after I pointed out the problem, I'm like, we need to fix this. They're like, oh, you seem to know what you're talking about. Now, why don't you go do this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> shit. <laughs> Should have kept my mouth shut. Yeah, that's right. So. That's how it works, though. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's another fix. But I, w- I was very interested to know. I've had some prosecutors on. Great people. I just, uh, another thing. If you do become DA, you know, don't make your people scared to talk. Like, <laughs> let them know that they can come out and say some stuff. Listen, um, <laughs> someone told me that leadership, that management by fear is not leadership. That's right. They told me that a long time ago. And so if the people that work for you are afraid of you, then you're not doing something right. Mm -hmm. That's not how it should be. You know, leaders are supposed to be, as my husband always says, inspirational and aspirational. Leaders are to inspire you to do well, but also uh, make you want to aspire to do better Mm -hmm. and greater. And so that's my that's going to be my leadership style. I'm going to be what many people call a servant leader. Yeah. That's what I'm going to be. I'm not going to be a micromanager. Um, I'm going to have expectations, of course, that I expect people to follow. But I'm going to, I mean, everyone in that office is going to have a law license. Mm-hmm. I'm going to expect you to use your law license. I'm going to expect you to use your reason and common sense and possess good judgment, evaluate cases, and do the best that you can for the county. For the victims, for the county, for the police departments, for the office, all of that. Yeah. And that will be my expectation. Again, until such time as you show me that you can't do that, then that'll be a problem. Okay. But, I mean, I worked in the DA's office for, I don't mean what, 24 years before I left. And... People, people are able to do it. I mean, mm-hmm. they're able to, people enjoy the job when, when they know that you trust them. Yeah. Um, and so, yes, yeah. they, they will be, as long as they um, aren't saying things about cases and so, like we just yeah. talked about. Yeah. One of my leadership qualities that I, I always push out there and what I would teach some of the, you know, recruits and stuff. And when I do my military time, the younger troops, I'll tell them my job is to provide you the tools you need to succeed. You tell me what you need. I will make it happen. Here's my expectations though. They've been clearly defined. These are what I need you to do. If you need help getting any of these, because you ask, Mm -hmm. but these are the expectations. Now that you know the expectations, just know I am the, I am the tool to get everything you need to make those expectations come to light. So, um, it's, it's worked for me. I just, you know, I, I actually think I got that from my dad. 
and uh, Buck, yeah. Buck Wheeler. Shout out to Buck. Buck. Um, yeah. Hey, Buck. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so that that's my leadership style, and you seem to be on the same line with that. So that'll be great. Um, why? This is where this this is me trying to educate myself. You're running for a DA position. Mm-hmm. Why does it have your political affiliation? I hate it. Why is that there? I hate it. So why does it matter? Listen, you're preaching to the choir. I want to take this opportunity to say this. I have said for years that people that work in the criminal justice system, whether they're judges, DAs, doesn't matter, should not have to be, should not have to choose a political party or platform. Because all the time, what I hear now from people is you're a Democrat. Yeah. So you're soft on crime. You want to defund the police. Um, you don't believe in bail. Um, yada, 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 yada. Your track record shows otherwise. My track record does. Folks, I did a little research before I had her on here just because I was like, I've never heard of a political party being on a nomination for a district attorney spot. So I was like, who is she? And then I looked back, she's been hammering people. So that's not a problem. Well, <laughs> right. But I've been hammering the appropriate people. Yeah, yeah, I don't. Yeah, no, no, I know like what you that. mean. I know what you mean. But yeah. I, but it's, it's an important distinction. But I, I, I strongly feel that way. Yeah. Um, because I don't feel that Republicans own the right to be tough on crime. I don't think that they own the right to be conservative. Um, I am a Democrat and my views are liberal in some areas, but I'm conservative in others. And so it does all of us a disservice when we have to choose a party because, you know, they, they put, they want to, they want to write my narrative. And put me in this box and say that I'm these things that I'm not. Yeah. And the flip side is they want to suggest or people suggest that my opponent is certain things. And it turns out that he's not in some areas. Yeah. Um, Just that statement alone. You're already so it's such a breath of fresh air. From a political position, because not often it's always a smear tactic. It's that's always what it is. Yeah. So I, I, um, I, I had to make a decision. And I had to make a decision to run in the party that I feel most aligned with my personal views and the party that I felt. I could run my own race in comfortably mm-hmm. and that is the democratic party. Yeah. Um, you know, do I believe in the death penalty? Yes. Um, that's not very democratic. No. See, Yeah. but it is, but, that, but I'm saying that like, that's some of the distinctions we need to make. Right. Because I, that's what I hate about politics. You can, you can have a view on the, what's considered the other side. But it is it is democratic. There are lots of Democrats who believe in the death penalty. Right. Um, and, and I'm not suggesting that the death penalty is something I, I'm because I've done those types of cases. I'm very cognizant of the fact that it is a very it, it, it requires 
uh, a lot of insight and thoughtfulness yeah. when making that kind of decision. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I just, I hate that people want to put me in this box and make all these suggestions about yeah. me. Um, and it drives me crazy. Yeah. I, I hate like, that is exactly why. I hate politics because we've gotten so divisional and my show, I already told you, like we don't get into politics on my show, but in this instance, we're talking about community building. I don't want to instantly be dismissed because of my political affiliation. And then we get somebody on here who's running it, you know, it's the South. Right. (laughs) Typically red. Yeah. And you're saying you're running for a democratic spot, but you're coming on and you're showing people right away. Like, look, that is that is a team a vague team that I do not have to hold all the same opinions that make me in that category. I remember a conversation I so this will this I think hopefully this will make it all make sense. When I made the decision to run, I was talking to an elected official who happens to be a Republican. And I told them that I was running as a Democrat. And they just like <laughs> oh my god what what, you know and they looked at me and said well what are you going to do if if you're you know and I said what do you mean what I'm going to do and they said well you know you have to adopt the democratic party platform 100% and I said no I don't And they said, yes, you do. And I said, no, I don't. I said, do you adopt the Republican Party platform 100 percent? And they looked at me and they said, well, 90 percent of it. And I thought, there you go. There you go. (laughs) Like, no. It drives me crazy. Yeah. Because because what politics does is trying to pick a political party in this type of work. Mm -hmm. What it does is it keeps people uninformed. And they just vote Republican or Democrat based on what they see on TV or what they've heard. Yeah. And they know nothing about the candidates. Oh, for sure. Yeah. That's <laughs> no information. And, and, and people, you know, there are people out there that want to keep voters ignorant. You know, like, I don't want to get too political on your show, but I will say this. My opponent won't debate me. Oh, okay. So how, you know. Yeah. How can you hash out differences if you don't want to debate? Right. Or how can people really get to know, you know, if if I just go into democratic circles and talk, of course, everybody's going to be, yay. Yeah. And if my opponent only goes into Republican circles, yay. And I tell people all the time, not everybody is a Democrat or Republican. Yeah. They're independents. Mm -hmm. They're libertarians. Their Green Party. Mm-hmm. Who's speaking to them if you don't, you know? I've had cops tell me they won't, they, they don't want to listen to my stuff anymore because I've had criminals on. See? I'm like, you fucking missed the whole point of the show. Right. Like, I, I can't just do one side of the house. Right. Like, if I just have cops on here, of course you're going to be into it. I, but I, that's not helping the 90% of the audience I'm not hitting. How do you grow as a person? And if you are in a position of leadership, how do you grow as a leader if you are unable to sit in a room with someone that has different views, different ideas than you and listen? 
Nobody said you had to agree. Yeah. How boring of a life is that? That's boring. Oh. I mean, I can sit, I can, you know. Yeah. Who wants to be in a room with people who think like you, look yeah. like you, act like you, talk like you? Oh, I mean, yeah. all day yeah. long. I mean, it's. I remember on, this is funny, it's social media on Facebook. I had cops left and right private message me. Who the fuck is this person that's on your, and saying all this, it's all my Flint people back home. But I'm like, that's a friend from high school. They're like, he's crazy. <laughs> I think it's a 40 cal. That's a nine millimeter. Is it nine? Yeah. yeah okay. See, I'm taking my glasses yeah, off. Yeah, yeah. I can't see. Well, that's a nine. Yeah. They're all nines then. Yeah. But, um, they throwing a fit because I got somebody on there that doesn't, that isn't the, the typical cop narrative, you know, that, 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 that agrees with everything. I'm like that. Dude, these are the people that keep me in check as a cop because I grew up with them and it keeps me grounded. I know where I came from, you know, and some of the concerns I had, I, like you were talking about uh, watching 60 Minutes and your dad basically saying, you know, if you want to fix it, you got to go there and be a part of it. Sit on the sidelines and just complain. But what's that going to yeah. do? And my magical moment of knowing when I was going to do what I was going to do was... um Growing up playing basketball on the street, I lived on like on a dead end road type thing. And I had one of those rollout hoops, it's like kind of one of the first ones in the neighborhood to have one. Um, you know, they're cheap. They, I mean, cheaply built, but uh, I had something. So cops come by and like get out of their car, throw me the rock. And I'm like, oh shit, they got to play basketball. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Throwing basketball and dude stabs it and pops it. The other officer throws the hoop down on the ground and breaks it. And I'm like, what? And, you know, I'm, I'm livid what? as a 14 year old and I'm calling my dad, maybe I was 10, 12, 14, somewhere in that age. Call my dad who's a cop down in Texas. And I'm like, tell him what happened. He's like, look, I get it. He's like, in any, any profession, somebody's gonna be good. Somebody's gonna be bad. It's mm -hmm. just, just, it's everywhere. He goes, but, uh, can you be either a part of the problem or part of the solution? And it's basically how he laid it out. And from the, it took a little while for that message to really hit home, but it, I think it hit home right away. I just didn't realize it. And then I was like, well, shit, now I need to go be the change that I wanted to see and all that. Um, all those cliches. All those cliches. Yeah. Uh, hashtag be the change. Um, I think that's a big push right now. Uh, but it really is true in a way. You have to, if you want to see things change, you have to get out there and do it and, and, or, or, at least get involved with it. Right. Something. You know, I'm not saying you have to go be a cop to fix things. You just tons of different ways to go be a prosecutor. Do, do whatever you got to do. Um, be a defense. I mean, that's another way to help. Um, everybody deserves a defense. Uh, that's right. So I see that, you know, writing on the wall, so to speak with, with you, like you're being the change that you want to see. I kind of took a note from that myself and went down the same path. and. It doesn't matter what our political views are. We can disagree on certain things and still be friends. Right. We can still disagree. My buddies back home, I disagree with a lot of the shit that they talk about because Flint is a shithole. Sorry, Flint. You know it is. <laughs> oh. uh, that's why I got out of there. Um, it is just no hope for them at the moment. I mean, they're trying. They always try, but they just created a big vacuum when all the shops left. It allowed crime to elevate because there's no jobs. All the people that could afford to get out did get out. Everybody that's there is left to fend for themselves against the people that have no means. So it stinks. We yeah. don't have that problem here, though. We're growing. Yeah, we're growing. But, I mean, we 
you know, it's not it's not like it's not like that. But no. w- but one of the things you did say, which which resonates with me is, you know, economically disadvantaged neighborhoods are where you find your the majority of your crime. Yep. And wouldn't it be great? Okay, this is my naivete coming out again, right? Okay. But but wouldn't it be great if 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 people learn to work together to end the cycle of violence? I mean, there are there are going to be some people. Don't get me wrong; that are just going to get commit crime because they're just that's what they do. Yeah. And I have found over my years that I don't know if I had to guess. I'd say maybe twenty five percent of the people 30 percent of the cases i've come in contact with are people that just do crazy stuff then there's that other group of people and they're just like hungry uh mentally ill that's the biggest part got a drug problem Mm -hmm. um you know i tell people all the time i'm like prostitutes don't prostitute because they like having sex that's not that's not why they do it yeah right and you know that yeah, they, they do it because they need they either need a fix because they have a drug problem mm-hmm. or they need money for just to survive or they, whatever. They were trafficked in a way. They just don't realize it. They were trafficked in a way and don't yeah. realize it. And so, you know, so. It, I, I feel like if if government. Uh, our governments and our elected officials would. Do things to help build our disadvantaged neighborhoods, things would be better. Mm-hmm. Um, I look at like what's going on over in, in Fort Worth at Echo Heights, where the community is like, please stop building these, these, re- these um, trucking commercial trucking places around our houses. Cause you know, it's, it's, it's tearing down our neighborhood. Yeah. Um, Listen to them when they tell you that. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in a neighborhood in Dallas that didn't have a grocery store, like in my neighborhood. Like I had to drive, my, my parents had to go a long distance just to get to the grocery store. And so I think about those kinds of things, you know, I, they seem small, but if you have neighborhoods that are where they can thrive, where people can like live and, you know, do the things that they need to do. A lot of the crime stuff would, I won't, I'm not going to say it's going to go away because it's not going to go away. Yeah. It'll lower. But I think it would lower. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I think um, part of our, our deals as police officers too, is to, to have the ability to be more involved. Um, Part of the problem with, big cities is understaffed cops are understaffed and they can't stay in the same area. You know, if, if you've only got four guys on shift and you're required to cover this geographical area, well, normally let's say this is your neighborhood that you're responsible for, but now we got to go, you're responsible for this neighborhood and this neighborhood. Now I can't dedicate any time to get to know my people. These are my people because this is where I'm normally assigned. But because this guy's not at work or because we don't have officers assigned to these beats because we just don't have enough. Now, now try getting to know three neighborhoods. So now we've come full circle because now we're back to the hiring that you're talking. Yes. Yes. And 
police right now are hurting mm-hmm. because nobody wants to do the job. It's not worth it. You got states like Colorado and New York talking about getting rid of qualified immunity. Yeah. And, and that is insane. Oh, are you, are you versed up on qualified immunity that you could explain it in a dummy version? That, that's a question asked to me all the time. I pause to, I pause because I'm never going to tell you something. Okay. I'm never going to try to answer a question that I'm not good at answering. Okay. That's why I asked if you're versed. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I know what qualified immunity is. I, I generally speaking, I understand it, but I, I, I don't feel like I'm well-versed enough to gotcha to give a real Answer. Well, yeah, because I don't want to say anything that's that's not, not correct. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, I will tell you kind of the way that I have researched it myself and, and looked into it. My mic sounding kind of dead. Um, qualified immunity for those out there wondering, like, why do officers have this qualified immunity? Basically, and this is this is not 100 percent accurate. I'm telling this already. But my understanding is. If. Working in your official capacity. Yes, working as a police officer. Um, let's say I go out and another officer is like, gun, gun, gun. And I turn, I look, I see a cell phone, but I didn't realize it's a cell phone. To me, I just see something in his hand. Another officer told me, gun, gun, gun. I shoot. And then it turns out it wasn't a gun. Like the qualified immunity protects me from being uh, sued by their families and all of this stuff because my intentions wasn't to commit murder or anything like that. Right. That's where qualified immunity protects me versus if qualified immunity went away, um, you could just sue me. Like, let's take that whole scenario away. Let's just say I got out of the car and you didn't like the way I looked at you. And now you can just sue me for whatever you want. You can tie up the courts and just sue me. Um, the other thing that qualified immunity does that people don't understand, in my opinion, is that if let's say I did see that guy and you catch me on camera or whatever, I'm like, fuck that guy. And I just shoot him. Like I commit an actual crime. Qualified immunity is gone. Because once you commit an actual crime with malicious intent, qualified immunity goes out the window. So there's really no need to change it, in my opinion. It's just be go after cops that are doing dirty things and the ones that are honestly trying to do their job and they make a mistake. That well, qualified immunity is still there for them. I think um, that that is another part of the education piece when we talk about educating the public yeah. about what things mean. Because when people think qualified immunity, they think you're able to get away with stuff. Yes, that's how they hear it. That's how it. That's and, how I would. And they it. don't. They don't uh, get the nuances in it, which is why. I pause to try to describe it because there are nuances in it. Yeah. Um, but that to me, that's the education piece that we've been talking about that people need to understand. Mm -hmm. Like it's not a way to get away with stuff. It is a way to protect officers when their conduct, um, while they're working in their official capacity as a, as a police officer, when their conduct isn't, um, here I am explaining it anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. But well, I kind of greased the wheels, so we kind of had something to go with. So, <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, it 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 really is a matter of whether or not someone is intentionally doing something as opposed to, yes, not intentionally doing not intentionally. something. 
Yeah. But it's but it 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 really is a lot more nuanced than that. Yes. And I and you can agree or disagree, but one of the things the writing on the wall I see is if you get rid of qualified immunity, you're going to have officers that one nobody's going to come to do the job. Right. Because they're going to be like, "Well, shit, why would I go do that job for 50, 60,000 a year or whatever they're getting paid?" Only to just have to worry about getting sued left and right. Because that's really the door you'd be opening. And two, you're going to cause a lot of inactive police work. There's going to be more crime. There's going to be less things solved because cops are going to be like, you know what? Why risk it? That one's not worth it. Yeah. Why risk it? Why? I'm. Do I really want to get involved between those two people fighting? Nah. I'm going to stand back and report like a security guard. Times have changed. You oh, know? For sure. I mean... The world is a different place than it was in 1952, mm-hmm. right? And so um, because times have changed, I, I do think that there are some things that we need to look at a little more closely, but um, it's just a different world that we live in right now. I mean, I never lived in 1950. I wasn't born <laughs> in but my, my I wasn't going to say nothing. Well, but my point is, Uh, It's just like technology, you know, cell phones. Yeah. I mean, cell phones have changed how we can prosecute cases. Yeah. And uh, we have now we have laws on the books related to cell phone data and collection and how we can slapped with that new law by a judge not too far off ago. Right. (laughs) It changed and I didn't know. And he's like, no, that ain't going to fly. no Right. (laughs) And so so we we have to we must change with. Um, the times, because we have to respond to this changing world that we live in. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of our laws, uh, my own personal opinion, some of our laws need to change because our world is changing. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you have any examples specifically that you're thinking of? Yeah, but people aren't going to like it. But I'm going to, but I'm, but I'm going to tell you because I'm not, I mean, I'm not afraid of it, but so our law of self-defense. Okay. When I first started practicing law, there was a duty to retreat. Oh, okay. See, did you know that? I didn't. Okay. So when did you start policing? Um, in Texas, Mm -hmm. uh, 2012. Okay. That makes sense then. So when I first started um, practicing, the law of self-defense said that you have there's a you have a duty to retreat. Like if you can retreat from it, if there is a a avenue in which um, you can leave without having to use deadly force, then the law required that you do it. And many people said, oh, that makes sense. Like so if you don't have to kill someone. Yeah. Then. You don't have to kill someone. Right. You can just leave. I would assume that doesn't apply to your, the castle. No. Doctrine. Yeah. Because that's going to be the people's first thing. Well, somebody breaks in my house. No. I'm shooting them dead. Like, that's not the same thing. Yeah, different. Well, now with the stand your ground that we basically have in Texas, that has changed. There is no longer a duty to retreat. Okay. Okay. Whether you're in your castle or not, you don't have a duty to retreat, period. Okay, fine. No problem. But then we start like changing other laws with respect to like how we carry guns, how we carry weapons. Um, And it used to be, you know, when I first started, it was a crime to have a gun in your car unless you could prove that you were traveling. Okay. Or some or there was some reason 
like that to happen. People are going to find that strange to hear that that's a Texas law. They are going to find it strange. Everybody thinks Texas is the most free gun state there is, and it's not. And I'm not saying this to say I agree or disagree with any. I'm just showing you the evolution of how our laws have changed over time and and how elements of how our law has changed. Now now all of these laws are kind of coming together, and it's like, boom, kind of in my opinion. Yeah. And so it used to be we I had UCW that's UCW yeah. lawfully carrying a weapon all the time when you intentionally knowingly possessed a handgun it was a crime yeah and then it changed and now it's not mm-hmm. and if you had a concealed handgun license it was okay and now it's like put it on your hip as long as you have it in a holster yeah it's okay you know so so you see how just gun ownership has changed. Right or wrong, but it's almost in my mind like creating this perfect storm now because now you don't have a duty to retreat and you have a weapon readily available on your hip. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I've seen a lot of cases where people shoot first, ask questions later. You know, like yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. So I say all that to say this: I'm not saying that one is. This is just the evolution of our laws and. Perhaps someone should take a look at them to see how each of these laws are fitting with one another. Because I don't think right. anybody's actually doing Checking that. Checking that data. Yeah. Yeah. I don't Seeing think any- if there's a statistical significance there. Yeah. And yeah. I don't think anybody's actually doing that. Because yeah. we, have, we have these knee-jerk reactions, right? I remember one of the, one of the new crimes was, uh, and it's still on the books, it's operating an amusement park ride while intoxicated. <laughs> Did you even know that was a that was a law? That's awesome. No. Okay, and I remember because uh, we have these. You know, whenever the legislator legislature that's racist is, it, against the carnies. It, <laughs> but whenever they're in session, uh, you know, there's something that happens, and people are like, "If this ever happens again, we've got a law for it." And so I remember reading it, going, "What? Like, yeah." How often is that going to happen? Like, <laughs> can't you just sue the Six Flags and, like, yeah. get some money? Like, do we actually have to have a law that criminalizes operating an amusement park ride? Yeah. Like, but, you know, I I, get you. whatever. <laughs> so my point is, you know, we we have a lot of laws on the books, and I don't know if anybody's actually looking at them trying to figure out how they intersect. Yeah. And if the intersection of those... uh laws mm-hmm. are creating issues for us. Hence the reason I want to have a legislative li- liaison. I like it. Cause I, I want like, somebody to look at it. I like that idea, especially if they are in contact with detectives would probably be their most valuable tool. Yeah. They don't, they don't ask detectives. No. They don't ask prosecutors. They mm-hmm. don't. I know that because I see how some of these laws are written. I'm like, who the fuck wrote this? Yeah, you don't yeah, deal yeah. with this, obviously. Right, right, right. This they is don't. terrible. They, many of them are defense attorneys who write laws that kind of help that side. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that that's, that's one of the things that I'm going to do. Okay. I don't think that's bad. It, because No, it's not bad. It's just that it, I, you know, I, cause I don't want people to think that, Oh, Tiffany is not, you know, pro gun and blah, blah. I mean, it, it's not, it doesn't, a, it's not mutually exclusive. Yeah. Again. But it, it's not even about that. It's yeah. just about the fact that we have all these changes in our laws Yeah, and nobody, I don't think ever takes the time to look to see how they intersect with one another. That could be creating this perfect storm yeah. where we're 
creating more crime than we are yeah. lowering it. Right. That makes I, sense. Does that make sense? It does. Um, and I will say the, the whole duty to retreat thing. You never heard that before. No, no, I've heard of it. I know it's a big thing in Florida. Because I've seen some videos where I'm sitting there, I'm watching like, dude, you could have fucking walked away from that. Right. Why did you have to shoot Why'd that guy? Why'd you have guy? to shoot that guy? Um, and again, I, I would be more prone towards case by case basis rather than you just get to write it off because you didn't have a duty to retreat. No, that's kind of fucked up because if you didn't have to kill somebody and you did because you don't have, you don't have to walk away, that's an that's a ego thing. That's not a justice thing. I mean, there's more to it too. I mean... Again, self def- the law of self-defense is also very nuanced. Yeah, it's a case-by-case basis it on every absolutely single time. is, every single time. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's just, it's, it's, whenever the legislature passes new laws, I'm always like, huh? Yeah. yeah. What? Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, I, you know, and then when the gun laws changed about having a holster and as a cop perspective for me, I'm looking, I'm like, now I know who's armed. That's perfect. Mm-hmm. I in an armed society is a polite society. Like I, as an officer, I tend to find the people that take the time to get license, get carry that carry weapons and stuff like that. Oftentimes are like the best. They're awesome. Great to work with. Um, and then the ones that are carrying, you know, concealed gangster styles, I like to put it. And like, that's st- still against the law. Like, it's yeah. all about perspective too. Yeah. I was at the Waffle House. Yes. I love the Waffle House. Why? That's so gross. I'm sorry. Texas, y'all can kiss my ass. I don't like Waffle House. I like the waffles. So Uh, my husband and I were at the Waffle House one day, not too long ago. Okay. And a man walked in with his wife, and he had his gun and his holster on his hip. Okay. And perspective. Uh Uh-huh. It's 930 in the morning, and I'm thinking it, it made me feel very uncomfortable really yes okay i'm i okay my perspective on it is but i but i hadn't thought of it from your perspective and and as a police officer i think yeah that makes sense to me that you would be like okay i I know where the where the danger is if there is danger right i I can see it i don't have to guess about it Mm -hmm. it's right there on his hip yeah and and then i see the irresponsible ones that carry on their hip and it's you know, it's not secured very well. It's it's inviting. They have no, uh, they're sitting on their cell phone. No awareness. No awareness around them. And they're just inviting somebody to take that off of them. And we've seen videos like that happen. Um, so I, I see that. And I'm just like, like I said, I don't consider myself on one side or the other. I see arguments on both sides. On both sides. And more often than not, I, I'm of the opinion I'd rather have a weapon and not need it than not have one and shit goes down you know what i mean and you, and you needed a weapon and i keep thinking about my like my grandkids i have seven grandkids seven grandkids christmas has got to be awesome for you man it i can't i can't say it sucks that's i mean i i would think as a grandparent i uh, <laughs> because oh well anyway i digress but i keep thinking about my grandkids if they were in waffle house with me and this man walked in with this gun on his hip i keep wondering like how it would make because it made me feel uncomfortable uh-huh. I'm like how would it make them feel to see somebody walk yeah. in with the gun on that's their where the discussions come in yes yeah. that's right yeah that's Just right talk about it have you ever gone through a um concealed weapon carry class or anything like that no you should do one so my husband so let me tell you 
yesterday, my husband met two Air Force guys. Yeah. And they own a gun uh, range and uh, 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 well, they, I, I don't know if they sell guns or not. But anyway, they invited us to okay. come. So I'm going. Hell yeah. There's a guy you should look up. His name's Colian Noir. He's out of Dallas. Um, he's an attorney. That's his, but he didn't like guns, had a fear of guns, um, ended up going and shooting a gun. Somebody convinced him and he had the mentality of like, I'm going to attack the things that scare me. And that was like his mindset. He's like guns didn't grow up with them, all that stuff. So they frightened him. So he went after it, became obsessed hmm. and became a second amendment activist, but a spokesman for the NRA. It's a black male who's a attorney, I think defense attorney, speaking on behalf of weapons. Like it's, it's just a totally different narrative. You know what I mean? Somebody you don't hear do that, but he, I like his approach because he's the guy that takes people like you that are like, you know, I, I don't have, I haven't done that yet. You're not not opposed to it. You just haven't done it yet. It's weird too, because for 16 months, like I said, I was gun girl. That's what they call me. It was weird. But I've, I can't tell you how many guns I've handled. Yeah. Like I don't, I'll, you know, pick them up. I, whatever. Yeah. Um, so I'm not, I don't know. It's not that I'm afraid of guns. It's just that I think I've been, uh, kind of trained to feel comfortable with them in my environment as a prosecutor. Right. But when I see them outside of that environment, uh-huh. it kind of makes me feel a little. Yeah. Now we have guns. I mean, we have guns. My husband's yeah. military, so we have guns. Yeah. We have guns in the house. Mm-hmm. When, and when he was in Iraq, you know. Yeah. It's one of those things that just becomes, it like, it becomes a tool. Yeah. Like, like the way the, the way I look at them now is. Where's my wallet? Where's my keys? Where's my gun? Where, you know, like, it's just another, like, everywhere I go. You're my husband. Yeah. We don't go anywhere without his gun. Yeah, absolutely. You know, part of my, you know, credo for my life is, like, I'm the defender of my family. Yeah. Like, they get out of there and I defend them. That's just my mindset. If something bad were to happen and I didn't have the tools of, that I know I have available because I got lazy that day or I didn't take the time then that's going to eat at me for the rest of my life. Yeah. So I, I try to instill that in my daughters. Like when, when it seconds count, cops are minutes away. Like your dad's a cop and I'm telling you this, like nobody can protect you. Like you can protect you if you take the time to do that. And so that's kind of the way I push that. So my husband got me a shotgun now. Cause he's like, you can't shoot. That's okay. So he's like, get this. Cause you know, you're going to yeah. hit something. <laughs> <laughs> I guarantee if you just fire <laughs> off around, then whoever's in your house yeah. is going to run. So. He's like, he's like, you're going to hit something. So yeah. there you go. That's, yeah. That'll work. Um, yeah. I'm, I didn't mean to go down the gun That's route okay. with you. I didn't know that was going to happen. It's but, all right. Uh, you, you said it, it's something people aren't going to like, but I think you're very level headed about it. So, and you, I mean, I, I truly feel like every situation is different. Like yeah. I don't, it's just like the whole being pigeonholed, you know, with a party, mm-hmm. like every person is different. Every circumstance is different. Um, it drives me crazy when people try to create this narrative and throw everyone in there mm-hmm. and expect everyone to fit. Not we all, you can't, 
that's not how this world works. Yeah. Yep. You know how many murders I've tried? I can't even tell you because I don't even remember now. Yeah. But every one of them was different. Yeah. Every one of them. Yeah. Um, well, I don't have any more questions, but have we hit everything you want to hit? Is there any shout outs? Is there anything you want people to know? Um, I'm sure there is. I want to <laughs> shout out to my husband, Glenn. All right. Uh, he's been my, my biggest supporter. Uh, shout out to my mom. Hi, mom. Um, and my siblings. You know, I have, I have five sis- siblings. I have four sisters, one brother. There's six of us. Okay. And so they are, you know, huge supporters. Uh, I'm not just this, but just of me in general. Yeah. And I just love them. Love y'all. And, um, you know, I guess I'll end by saying, um, I, I really enjoy the work that I do that I did. Cause I'm not doing it right now. I had to quit to run. Yeah. Um, but I really believe that our county is in a defining moment of who we are going to be as a county. Mm-hmm. And we're either going to keep doing the same thing that we've been doing, um, or we're going to try to change the direction to do something a little different to make things better. And that's what I want to do. You know, people say, Tiffany, you know, you're tough. Tough on crime, yes. I'm tough on crime, but I want to be smart on crime too. Mm-hmm. And that's the part of the equation that I don't know if we're doing a really good job at. I need to show you the real-time crime center if you haven't seen it yet. Yeah, I oh, want to see it. I'm going to show you the future of policing. Yeah, I want to see You're it. You're going to like it. Yeah. So I'll definitely. Where, where, is, where is it? Um, Wait, I, I have been there. Isn't it behind? It's, uh, it's the old news building. We'll keep it vague. I, I, okay, yeah, yeah, I've been there. You've been there? I think so. Uh-huh. Did they give you like an actual like in-depth tour or did they just walk you around? Is it where the simulation is? No. Okay. You went to the village. Okay. Which that's also another okay. really cool okay. place. But okay. No. Yeah. I want to go. Yeah. I'm going to show you. Show you the rabbit hole. And when this gets done, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a quick brief. On That'll it. be cool. Uh, yeah. You'll like it. Uh, especially if you end up winning. Um, you'll need to know about it. Because it's, like I said, I think it's, I, it's where I'm guiding my, my whole career path is specifically towards this because I just see the writing on the wall. Um, I'm a part of uh, the National Real-Time Crime Center Association that just came out uh, not too long ago. So I'm going to start trying to standardize some things. So when you say, real quick, Real-Time Crime Center, Mm -hmm. it collects statistics and data about crimes as they are happening or? It's a, it's, that's a part of it. It's a, it's a a video camera system set up throughout the city with license plate readers. Oh, that. Okay. 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 Yeah. 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 Gotcha. Um, So we have that, you've got, you know, crime analysts. Gotcha. Contact us. We help, we give, you know, real time information to officers while they're out there. Um, while they're handling their call, we're already researching the license plates and stuff that they, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's just this very uh, in-depth process that helps keep police safer, uh, citizens safer, and bad guys safer, which always throws people off. What do you mean keeps bad guys safer? I'm like, well, now we can control where we take them down at. We don't need to go in in a bad area, force a situation. We can We can step back, give them breathing room, and then 
get them at a location that is later on. Yeah. That is good for everybody. So that's what I mean when I say we can keep a bad guy safer. We're not forcing them to make a really bad decision in a, in a tight spot. You know, it's like cornering a dog. Don't do it. (laughs) So, so the only other thing I would end with too, is just, you know, when I say we're in a defining moment, you know, my, my tagline has been for a long time, people over politics. I don't know if you saw it. I didn't. But I want people to just be informed voters. Mm-hmm. Like, go do your research. Yeah. Don't go to the poll and be like, I don't even know who these people are. Well, she's a woman, so I'm going to vote for her. Or uh, yeah. he's a Republican, so I'm going to vote for him. Or yeah. eeny, meeny, miny, mo. I mean, I've heard people do all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, you owe it to yourself into your community to do some research mm-hmm. and figure out like who you really think the best candidate is, who's motivated for the right reasons yeah. to do the job. And so that's kind of what I ask people to do. I love that because it's exactly kind of how I am as far as part, I, the party I, thing makes it hard though, doesn't it? It does. It does. It makes it, it I just rather, I rather look at you and see how you are as a person and except the fact that I'm not going to, it doesn't matter if we're the same party affiliation, I'm not going to agree with everything you say. And if I can get past that and realize that, okay, we're not going to agree on everything, but I trust you to make a heartfelt, you know, appropriate decision, not something based off of politics. You trust me to listen. Yeah. And that's really what it comes down to. Yeah, you're right. Like people who are willing to listen Mm -hmm. and at least consider it. I think that goes a long way. Mm-hmm. People who think they know it all and this is what I'm going to do and this is how I'm going to do it. And I don't want to hear any other opposing views or sides. This is, this is just the way. Yeah. I think you've made it problem. clear throughout this, that it doesn't matter what you say, because I'm going to take that case based on what that case is. Yeah. Cause it's not going to be the same as this one. It's not going to be the same as that one. So. Yeah. I'm with you. Well, I appreciate you being on, ma'am. Yeah. I couldn't believe I got you to get, I shot out a message to you and you're like, yeah, I'll do it. I was like, Listen, oh shit. Anytime I, I, I was telling somebody just the other day, anytime I have an opportunity to sit down with people and talk so people get to know me, Yeah, I'm going to do it. Like yeah. I've had people call me and say, hey, I didn't vote for you in the primary, yeah. but you know, I want to sit down and talk to you now. So I've met people at coffee shops. I've met people at their homes. I've done all kind of crazy stuff. My husband's like, you're crazy. I'm like, no, I mean, that this is what you do. Yeah. Like, this is how you, you get people informed and, and reach out and let people know that you're, mm-hmm. you're listening. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't know if I agree with everything you're saying, but I'm listening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just getting them to open the door for you in the first place. That's is, right. After hearing what, if you're not their political affiliation is big. So no, this is great. I appreciate it. Um, I think, uh, we did a very good job of not making this a political. Yeah, we did. Episode. We we talk we talk more about you than me. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! Don't tell my wife that. Um, but no, but I but we that's, stuck to education. Well, I was gonna say I'm. I took some notes. Can I tear this off too? Yeah, yeah, it's all yours. It's all about listening because you don't get better. I mean, if you don't know what people are thinking and what's going on. Yeah. You gave yeah. me some good ideas. Oh. 
That's just you a, gave me a that's couple. the tip of the iceberg. You want an idea machine? I'm that person. It's you. Yep. You're the guy. Okay. <laughs> Don't stop. That's my my skill. I look at holes in the system and I try to fix them. So yep. that's why I invested about fifteen to twenty grand of my own money into this. Nice. Yeah. And my wife doesn't think that that part was nice. So I think it's nice. Well, I appreciate it. Yep. And uh, anytime you want to come back, or if your brother wants to come on, anybody I'm going to ask him. Yeah, ask for him. Yeah. All I right. appreciate it, ma'am. Yep. Thank you. Thank you for having me.